Hello and welcome to The Back Page, a video games podcast. I'm Samuel Roberts and I'm joined as ever by Matthew Castle. Hello. Matthew, how have things been going on your end? What have you been up to in these last two busy weeks? I've still been playing my secretive games, I'm afraid, which doesn't make for a killer anecdote. Yeah, okay, so we um, we don't have any more clues on what they are then. Like, we just know that they're games that you like, and, uh, well, that's all we know, I think, actually. is um, Yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm, under, I'm under NDA. This podcast is a victim of NDAs, I'm afraid. Yeah, okay, cool. Well, um, there you go. I'll, uh, I'll let you know whichever mystery publisher keep their stranglehold on um on our discussions but uh <laughs> how have you been <laughs> um i've been all right i've um weirdly just this morning i was playing in preparation for this podcast i played 15 minutes of x-men origins wolverine uncaged oh, nice. edition to see if um it was actually like worthy of being on one of our lists for this um, podcast it isn't i'll be honest it definitely isn't um but it was fun to play something so juvenile it was like new metal as a video game just like wolverine slashing guys up and there being kind of blood everywhere and um remembering how flat xbox 360 textures were um in this era if if uh blockbuster game rentals was still a thing that is the game they were invented for absolutely yeah it was um but it was fun to give it a blast and see otherwise i watched the chris pratt film the tomorrow war which i think i bitched about to you in um discord while i was watching (laughs) yesterday that was um not as fun as it should have been. It could have been worse. But I think um, Chris Pratt has found his level in that film. That's how I felt watching it. So, um, yeah. It's kind but, of weird how he's gone from sort of funny man to just quite boring action hero. Not even that funny an action hero. It's weird that he doesn't see himself as a guy who tries to be in like, prestige stuff. He doesn't really make Oscar Beatty films. He just wants to make blockbusters. But um, mm. quite flavourless ones. So, uh, well, yeah. I imagine he's making a, an awful lot of money. Yep, absolutely. Yeah, I'm sure he doesn't um, care what two dweebs in the UK think about him. So cut to cut to him listening to this this episode. <laughs> yeah, this well, is um... bullshit. <laughs> also, okay. Wolverine's Origins is amazing. Oh, well, as in you like the game? No, that's what Chris Pratt's saying. Oh, right. Okay, right, right. right. That makes sense. Yeah, sorry. I was, um... <laughs> Listen, it was a confusing bit. <laughs> <laughs> it was. Yeah. Also, I had a, a sleeping pill last night, so I wondered if it was the After Effects kicking in of like. <laughs> Hearing my own thoughts repeated back to me as, you know, Matt Car- in Matt Castle's voice. I don't know, it was very bizarre. Um, but yeah. Okay, so, Matthew, we've reached another of our best of the year podcasts. So, Hooray. we've previously done, for the people listening, we've previously done 2006, 2007, 2008, and we did 2020 as well because that was um, at the end of last year. So, um, this will be the fifth one we've done. Um, I don't know about you, Matthew, but my eventual goal is that we have, like, basically the last 20 years in, like, one big kind of like chunk of stuff people can listen to yeah and, i would um, like that i think that that would be a valuable resource i think so too so i kind of want to ask like um what was it like for you revisiting this year what did it make you think about on the surface i was like great i remember 2009 being really good and then the second i started looking into it it, it was a much bleaker picture <laughs> <laughs> Is uh, that for video games or for matt castle uh, related kind of a combination it was a bit of a roller coaster putting together this episode, I'll, I'll admit, because I went in thinking it was strong. Then at a cursory glance, I was like, oh, this was a horrible year for Nintendo. But around them, I think some other people took up the slack, and there was some weird stuff as well. So actually, my list is of, of the best games is surprisingly Nintendo-heavy. It surprised me how Nintendo-heavy it was. Um, but more like the, the mag was a little slow. There weren't as many exciting things to cover. And also, just personally, 2009 was like like a, like a weirdly kind of bleak year in terms of 
not achieving a great deal and just feeling a, a, a bit restless. Yeah, I'm trying to flash back to 2009 myself. So the big thing that happened to me this year was I moved from Play, the um, UK independent PlayStation magazine, to X X360, which was an Xbox 360 magazine, also independent in the UK. Both of the same company, so it was like an internal move. But I got a promotion from um, senior staff writer, games editor, which I'd been like, to be honest, like, you know, fighting quite hard for for a long time because a lot of people who joined at the same time as me were getting promoted. I felt like I was being held back because I was younger than the other ones. I think it was probably just because I was a petulant little bastard, um, <laughs> <laughs> which is actually a good reason not to promote someone, I think. Um, but it was um, it was a I'd fun like to year. See that written on an HR form. <laughs> I'm sure it's somewhere in, a, in the office. Reason for no promotion. Not that reason for no promotion is a slot on an official form. <laughs> <laughs> Just for my forms. They had like 100 printed out just in case. Um, no, I was like, so I was still not very old at this point. I was like, I think I was 21 this year. And I was 20, I don't remember. It was around this early 20s anyway. So a bit, being promoted to like, you know, section editor. So um, games editor basically means that you're in charge of calling in reviews and arranging some preview stuff. It's mm. not really that like um, in-depth a thing. It's mostly like just being in touch with publishers to hey, is your review code coming in sort of thing? Like how um, your CIGN has like a reviews editor and stuff. It's, it's mm. kind of like that, but for a magazine. So I was doing that. But to be honest, outside of work, I don't really have any personal life memories from this year. I think like for the first three years of my job, my job was just my life. Like that was, uh, it was like the core of my identity. It takes yeah. until next year, the year after this, where I kind of like, there's a, I'm doing a job I don't enjoy as much. So I start investing in myself a bit more. And then the rest of my life is kind of a push and pull between like job and personal life and varying degrees therein. How how was it for you? I think we're still making a good mag, but the stuff we were covering was less exciting to me. And maybe my excitement in the job wavered a tiny bit, which is is maybe why the kind of the bleakness of that year sort of seeps in. This this is the year I uh, Rich Stanton moved out of my flat, and then I got a friend of the show, Rich Stanton, of course. And I got a, an absolutely, like, terrible flatmate in his place. Was it Yuji Naka? <laughs> no, Yuji Naka does feature in this episode later, though. Oh, my God. I, I can't... I, I, well, okay, I can't wait. I'm not going to spoil the surprise, so carry on. Basically, I, I, I wasn't very good at... Or I wasn't very, sort of, careful in selecting my next flatmate. And I basically just wanted to get someone in to start paying their half of the bills. Like, I didn't want it to be a huge crossover period. I ended up getting in this... Uh, long distance runner i can't remember what she did for most of the time but she was like a, a like a semi-professional long distance runner but her sort of boyfriend sort of moved in sort of at the same time and i wasn't very assert i wasn't very assertive and couldn't really deal with this sort of well it's really not a you know a room for two people so it felt like i was living with two people for a year and they were both long distance runners and just incredibly irritating <laughs> and everyone else had a good old laugh because they were irritating all kinds of weird ways. So for everyone else, it was like tuning into like a weird sitcom when I tell people about it at the office. But for me personally, it was it was quite uh, hard going. That sounds rubbish as well. As a man who I know enjoys lots of snacks as well, the idea of like you know probably your part of the kitchen's full of like you know nonsense if it's anything like my kitchen. And they're just eating like I don't know grains or whatever shit that run, runners eat. I mean, there were two things because they were they were both on like wherever creatine is, but it made them like itch like crazy. Uh. So they're always scratching. Oh god! <laughs> just grim. These two really like 
bean poles scratching their way around the flat the whole time. The guy was like, uh, a, like sort of semi addicted to petty felu, um, <laughs> the tiny yogurts, but right, like yeah. to the point where he'd eat them like six at a time. He wouldn't even break them off. He'd eat a tray of six petty felu, just peel them off, eat it as like a unit. And then leave all these like six pack, these empties, sort of uh, hollowed out six packs of Petit Falou around the flat. And that looks really weird. I used to say, it reminded me, it looks like a weird like ammo cartridge or something. Yeah, yeah, like a halo uh, gun or something. And it's just like, they're aimed at children. That's why they're so small. Yeah, Petit, it's in the title, Petit. Petit, exactly. You know. I just think if you're having to eat six Petit Falou at a time, I think that's like god's way of telling you to eat a bigger yogurt i'm no yogurt connoisseur but i, I do find the petty flu a little bit sweeter than your um general kind of like muller adult yogurts that have um homogenized yeah i think they might be fromage phrase <laughs> right yeah that's right yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> um but then they're a bigger fromage phrase you know just or just get a big pot of like is it yonkin or something <laughs> <laughs> i mean that sounds like a made-up like fallout brand or something <laughs> yeah. um but yeah, I think Onken knows what you're thinking of, but yeah. That really sours. That's more in 2010 that that relationship sours, and I end up <laughs> hiding a television at one point. <laughs> All right, well, let's um, conclude that then in, in a few weeks when we talk about 2010. It, yeah, it kind of goes downhill from there, but that was stressful. The other thing I used to do was play on my Xbox when I was at work, oh. on my profile, fucking oh. with my stats. Because people at work be like, oh, I see you're playing Modern Warfare. And I'll be like, no, I'm not. And they're like, well, there you are. Uh, do, 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 I assume you told them to stop and they just didn't do it. Uh, several, several times. Um, and, and so begins the kind of period of like hiding electronics. <laughs> if that was me, it would drive me genuinely mad. Like I would I would probably like get close to like murdering them. I'd be well, like... This is the thing. Yeah. I was so passive that I didn't know how to deal with it. And that's why it... It just played out way longer than it ever should have. You've created some good villains there. But um, with that, uh, we come to the end of our Best Games of 2009 episode. We've um, <laughs> covered all the big beats, I think, there, Matthew. Um... <laughs> uh, okay, so tell me more about what was going on with you job-wise in um, 2009. This was the year I became games editor on Endgamer. If I didn't, it was right at the end of the year. I was staff writer for quite a long time on that mag, and I was doing the kind of games editor job. I was sourcing review code from quite early on. Like That was a task Greener gave me back 2007, I think. So I felt like I was doing the job, and it was just a case of, I guess, freeing up resources to be able to pay me like 50p more or something. This was a year I did like no trips. I was basically office-bound the whole year. This is the year I got quite sour about other people moaning about the trips because I was like, I would do anything to get out of this office right now. Yeah, like, we were doing lots of preview covers for just not very good games, not very interesting things. It, it felt like the kind of honeymoon period of Wii was, like, properly over. E3 gives us a, a little bit of hope for the future, but this particular year was was quite hard how how was it for you yeah so obviously i moved from a playstation mag to an xbox mag uh, one of the last things i worked on on play was um an un- the uncharted 2 cover feature i discussed in um, games oh, covers yeah, from yeah. heaven so that was cool interviewing um four of the like naughty dog leads and um that was that was like a good kind of final hurrah on play which um mm. to be honest i was pleased to get off of it like um i think that as my first games mag job it sort of broke me through a barrier of like, oh, this thing that you really enjoyed reading, you now like can't enjoy in the same way because you've worked on it. Um, mm. But I think like I kind of sacrificed my enjoyment of play to learn the job, and then moving on to X three hundred and sixty was just kind of like a, a laugh. It was um, 
quite a young team. I'll confess again, like very laddish. It was like, you know, we weren't like, you know, sort of alpha male sort of, you know, gruff guys, but you know, this was a male dominated environment. And I think that showed in the product, you know, for better or worse. Um, mm. for, for worse mostly actually um, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know why I said for better um, yeah so that's I, I only wanted to note that because I, I thought of a couple of things last night when I was going over it and I was like oh I wish I hadn't written that or whatever and like um, I think that uh, yeah just a bit more of a diverse environment would have um, created a more interesting product but why am I being so downbeat I did really enjoy working with this team so Simon mm. Miller was the editor and he was a, he was a really fun editor to work with he was like the youngest editor I imagine so um and he was always like uh, always just a good hang and sort of good spirited and um up for a joke and stuff and so mm. that was really enjoyable and uh, i worked with a couple of other sort of um people too like including my my buddy david lynch who i've discussed on this not the not the film um, director and mm. um yeah i mean you know yeah he's had that joke like his entire life i think so um just wanted to kind of spare him that but yeah so xbox <laughs> Was it was good to move on to Xbox where it felt more kind of like reassured. Like the entire time I was on play, it felt like the PS3 was just kind of in disarray, and then it was slowly piecing itself together as I left. And then um, moving on to Xbox, it just came off the back of 2008, which was like you know a, a crazy year of like Gears of War two and Badger Kazooie, Nuts and Bolts, and Fable two, and just you mm-hmm. know so much good stuff. Moving on to this mag was it was just cool to be to be on Xbox, where which is where I was playing games. It's where everyone was playing games at the time and. X360 mm-hmm. was like the best-selling mag. I went on two trips this year. The two big trips I went on were... Um, uh, so I went to see Bioshock 2 in San Francisco. Oh, the, nice. um, my memory of that is... It was a really good trip, but my memory of that is... Um, when I walked into the venue, there was a sign that said um, Bioshock 2 above... Or it might have said Rapture or something like that, above the door. If I'd have like stayed under that sign for like 10 more seconds, it would have like fell off, collapsed and probably killed me because it was made of metal and it just clattered onto the ground. And I do kind of always wonder, like, if I'd have been brained by a Bioshock logo, how different would my life be right now? Um, <laughs> that was a weird memory. Um, that was a fun trip. That was <laughs> you when I met- sued them. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, that was Mega when I met Andy Bucks. Kelly. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, you know, I um, named 2K Games and Andrew Ryan in the lawsuit. And uh, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, so the other trip I went on was to um, uh, Czech Republic to see uh, Mafia 2. That was quite a fun trip. They were in a a place called Brno, but we stayed in Prague because I think you know Prague's very picturesque and um, Brno parts of it seem beautiful but I only ever see like an industrial estate that kind of made it look like Fallout 3 <laughs> so um <laughs> I had quite a low impression of Brno, but um it was cool to do a studio visit to, for a game like this as well like you know a game set in American city made in a you know a Eastern European city that's quite a quite a cool thing so um Ooh. Yeah, that was that was it. But yeah, I think generally speaking, there were some trips this year, but I, I missed out on some of the sexier ones. Um, buddy of mine went to see Valve actually this year, and yeah. um, he got there, and Valve didn't send anyone to pick him up, <laughs> so he had to get a bus to the studio, and he got there just as it was closing, and they they were luckily able to check him into the hotel and stuff, but basically been forgotten about, and was in Seattle like, what the fuck do I do now? Which would have been so stressful to me. But, oh um, yeah. Yeah, but um, yeah. So that, apart from that, I didn't do any of the kind of like mega sexy trips I did on my um, 
my last uh, I mentioned last time we did this but um, next year I'll have the Skywalker Ranch trips to talk about so that'll be fun mm. but um, yeah so otherwise Matthew I was curious what were you watching sort of pop culture wise back in 2009 we like to talk about this a little bit when we do these yearly episodes again lots of bleak art house cinema this was a, I think this was the year where basically every weekend I was I was at the little theatre which is like the the kind of art house cinema in Bath I recall having a mild infatuation of the, the lady who worked on the sweetie counter at the cinema <laughs> and uh, not going to see these films because of that. But, you know, thinking, oh, well, when I go and see these films, you have that's my one point of interaction with this this kind of seemingly interesting person. Um, but unfortunately, that point of interaction is always about like Toblerones, <laughs> um, which doesn't really show like the, the full depth of my character. Uh, well, maybe. <laughs> uh, Tope Barons uh, are your language of love, Matthew, aren't they? Yeah. Uh, were you still yeah. watching Smallville at this time, Matthew? Big TV from this year was, I thought this was the year that like, Mad Men really got its hooks into me in season three. I was kind of cool on it up until that point. I don't really like the first two seasons. Really? Um, whoa, 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 whoa. What? Really? I, thought, I hated Don Draper. I thought he was just such an asshole and I couldn't get over it. It was just a, a, a show about quite repulsive people who i didn't think were that trendy for me it all really pivots with the infamous lawnmower bit i was like oh yeah i'm really into this now i'm really into these characters i just much prefer Mad Men when they go and set up their own agency i kind of like the the stuff in Mad Men about the business and about the success of the business rather than just them being creeps uh, it's funny actually someone else has um someone else told me that about their love of Mad Men. i personally think the first season has like um it's like possibly the most watchable it's just a really easy to watch Kind of like bathed in the setting experience, and then I think because it's about his slow decline, I guess. Like, um, Don Draper gets harder to watch the longer it goes on. So, I was watching Mad Men a lot around this time, too. I was, I was like, it was definitely becoming a part of like, oh, I would tell people that I watch Mad Men and recommend Mad Men, which is, I must have been incredibly irritating. Also, then I, I remember this year as well, the only kind of big sort of pop culture stuff I remember otherwise is uh, watching. Inglorious Bastards and Watchmen this year, those felt like my two sort of big Ooh. films. The Hangover as well, those were like the the big films of this year. I um, I was quite a big fan of Watchmen, but I saw it when I was um, super hungover. So uh, that was a bit of an experience because like a three hour film. So Best taken with sleeping bills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Okay. So Matthew, should we take a short break there? Then we'll come back. Yeah, that's a go. We've got, we've got a lot of cool music we can put in the breaks this week as well. So Absolutely. breaks are welcome. Cool. We'll uh, be back in a minute to talk about uh, the uh, what was going on in 2009 and then we'll get onto our games list after Welcome back to the podcast. So, in this section, we're going to talk about what was going on industry-wise in 2009 before we get into our list of the 10 best games of the year. So, around this time, Microsoft is still pumping out mega hits, but this is a slightly quieter year. They are furthering a push towards casual audiences that started the previous year by um, redoing the Xbox interface, getting rid of the blades and bringing in avatars and stuff. So, Mm. that happens at the end of 2008. 2009, they're kind of furthering it. This is the year that they will unveil what becomes uh, Connect Project Natal. But um, meanwhile, uh, Sony is getting back on track. This was the best year of PS3 games yet by far. The PS3 Slim also releases earlier this year and brings the cost of the console down, releases it in a kind of form that 
a visual form that looks like a console made for 2009. Yeah. It doesn't look I, like that, you know. I finally get a PlayStation 3 with the Slim at Christmas. Nice. That's good. Yeah, so And it was a console Christmas present, which is always a treat. Yep, that is. Uh, I did. I had exactly the same thing this year because my old PS3 that um, Darren on Retro Gamer sold me broke. So um, and he didn't offer a warranty. <laughs> Thanks, so. Darren. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't offer a warranty or anything like that. So um, I couldn't return it. But, Unbelievable. Um, <laughs> uh, so yeah, that was um, kind of what was going on with the big kind of console um, uh, platform holders. But then it's also obviously Nintendo this year. Um, Matthew, when I was going over this, I felt like the DS was kind of like starting to die off a bit this year, or at least wasn't getting the same investment in software. So maybe you can speak to this. There's some interesting DS games this year, but this doesn't feel like the DS's finest, finest hour. Going back over it, it's not as, it's not as diabolical as you might think. Like there, there are a few DS games in my list, for example. I mean, you get the DSi, which tr- triggers this slightly weird wave of DSi-enhanced games, which is an absolute nothing, just doesn't go anywhere, doesn't really deliver anything. It's, it's one of the most underwhelming promises. I like the DSi itself, though. I was a very big fan. I really like the form factor of it. Um, I love the little introduction of DSiWare. I mean, they didn't really get it right, but there is... Um, in uh, Flipnote Studio, which isn't in my top 10 because I don't really think of it as a game, but mm. as a piece of software is absolutely like vital piece of the Nintendo puzzle. Like On the mag, we really let into it. People were doing amazing things. If you don't know, Flipnote Studio was a, a Flipnote animation software for the DSi. Like The functionality of it was, just, it was beautifully simple, really elegant. People did incredible things with it. You could share it with this online site. That was quite exciting. I was... I was really, really into that. But DS is kind of trundling away. It's still doing, like, mega business in Japan, mainly because of, like, Dragon Quest IX, which um, kind of creates the second wave. This A lot of this period was sitting in the UK looking at the amazing DS figures in Japan and going, oh, man, I wish, I wish we were a magazine over there. People might actually read it. <laughs> um, yeah, but otherwise, this is kind of a weird year where Nintendo's still kind of leaning into the peripherals a bit. But at the same time, like, I see a lot of, like, Nintendo... Basically, the, the shift Nintendo had created a couple of years earlier with Wii begins to sort of, like, infect the other platforms a bit more obviously this year as well. I think, like, the downfall of Xbox begins with the push for a kind of more broader casual audience and... While Sony don't fall for it as much, the move stuff, which is either unveiled this year or becomes more prominent this year, is is very like undercooked, overcomplicated for my liking. That is absolutely a fair assessment. So this was a big bugbear for me at the time. It really bothered me that the only way that Sony and Microsoft could see themselves competing with Nintendo for a quote-unquote casual audience, that is... You know, people who see this um, console on TV buy it and never buy another game for it other than Wii Fit. They were, that was mm. the market they decided they would fight for. Um, their only solution to uh, basically competing was some kind of like motion control gimmick. And it really kind of like, I think, sours the second half of this generation. Mm. And I kind of think there's a little bit of like uh, <laughs> biblical justice for Microsoft in how badly this blows up in their face because. If you're going to cynically chase that when you have this, um, you know, roster of studios making great stuff and these, um, you know, a series that are kind of firing all cylinders, 
that's kind of like uh, it, it's just a it's just a real bummer it's, um, to people mm. who actually like actually like games so um yeah you think about like how much connect derails rare for like the next eight years or something and it basically like um basically has to sort of reinvent itself as a studio after that to 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 make sea of thieves and you know i'm really glad they did and they survived and they um you know got to keep mm. making cool stuff that's uh, it, these days i i you know the rare's got a really good vibe um really cool mm. people work at that studio and run that studio so yeah um, it's funny though because Microsoft is still putting out lots of great stuff. Um, something that someone flagged to us on Twitter, Matthew, when I asked like what your favorite games of um, 2009 was, um, what XBLA was doing this year. So, their Summer of Arcade, right in 2009, it um, they had a game a game a week across um, five weeks. These were the games, right? Marvel vs. Capcom 2: New Age of Heroes, so port of an older you know crossover mm-hmm. fighting game. Shadow Complex, Explosion Man. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, Turtles in Time reshelled, so like a HD re-release. Mm. Trials HD. That's a fucking amazing lineup of stuff. Mm. Like, um, that's them really kind of nailing what, you know, should be, what a kind of downloadable game looks like, what gets people excited. I do remember that feeling like it was a big deal when I was on um, I was on the Mac. It's, it's funny talking about that as well, like how curated and careful both Xbox and later PlayStation were with indies in light of all the chat this week, which I'm sure you've seen about like what a rough ride indies have on PlayStation particularly in terms of like just getting their game out there and they feel like they're they're not they're not well respected or represented within the company. I sort of prefer this 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 earlier period where there is less going on but there it feels like there is a, like a higher bar for quality. Yeah, for sure. Like um there's less gatekeeping now so anyone can make a game. That's good. Obviously though it leads to an absolute flood of product. But this is particularly mm. bad on Steam, of course. You know, it's uh yeah, I, I agree it was it was just they felt like real events when a, a downloadable game came out. And obviously that can still happen now, but because it was like bit baked into how the publishers were marketing, it was part of the console war basically. Like they the reason Sony were trying so hard at this time is cuz Microsoft had already invested in it and were doing stuff like Castle Crashers and you know um, the Geometry Wars Braid and stuff and... like uh, loads of loads of amazing stuff. So um, you know it, it feels like Sony only fights on these fronts when it feels like it needs to. The entire company still feels like it behaves this way. It's like, well, we'll mm. do this because we feel like we need to do it in the eyes of our audience, and that's why Indies became like a battleground in uh, the early part of the PS4. But now it seems like they feel like they don't need them. At least that's how mm. um, it would appear to be. Um, how they're behaving from. Um, some of those testimonies doing the rounds this week so Mm. yeah that's interesting so matthew i've got a little um, breakdown here of what's going on with um, the different console manufacturers during um, e3 i'll do um sony and xbox but obviously jump in whenever you like Mm -hmm. and um i'll leave you to handle uh, nintendo yeah because obviously you would have been paying forensic attention to this stuff so Sony at E3 2009. I think it's actually not too bad a conference this year. You can tell actually they're getting a bit more into the stagecraft of it this year. They know that they're being watched by a wider audience, so they're um, they're trying slightly harder. So um, yeah, kicks off with the collapsing hotel sequence in Uncharted 2, which releases this year. And I mentioned that on our um, Games Previews from Hell episode last week, so um, people would have heard me talk about that. But makes a really good first impression. It's oh, like yeah. here's like here is an actual massive blockbuster. You know. The kind of sequel of all sequels, really. Just an unbelievably good game. Probably the best E3 demo of that year. Uh, you know, Uncharted... Un- the original Uncharted was just jungles and, like, temples and stuff. And this was, like, you know, here's all these settings and all these set pieces and stuff. And um, 
Mm. Yeah, it was a treat. Um, Sony also has a massive action game um, <laughs> from the SOCOM developers. I think it had featured like 128 players in a, in a match. I found it really incoherent and boring when I played it. Um, so, I, you know, I'm sure that seemed like a big announcement. SOCOM always seemed like a US thing rather than a UK thing. So they reveal the PSP Go as well. It's a digital-only PSP that was like a disaster. It didn't sell very well eventually when it released. Um, it was a bit too ahead of its time, really. I feel like people would have really sort of, would really dig a, a download-only PlayStation handheld these days. They'd be fine without the physical media element. Who actually bought physical games for, like, the Vita? Anyone? Well, I've got a few, but not many. I think Persona's, like, one of the only ones I've got. And to be honest, I don't think I bought that. I think I got that for free when I went on play. So I remember at the time thinking that the um, PSP Go was just a bit too early, really, for a digital-only console. Like, um, I felt like Sony only really had a sort of um, threadbare presence on... Um, with uh, with how they were doing that, pushing that stuff, mm. and not and also not every game was available digitally. You couldn't get um, Metal Gear Acid Two, for example, or uh, stuff like uh, Kingdom Hearts Birth by Sleep, which arrives the next year, doesn't release on there. And there's a there's a bunch of games that only release physically and never release digitally. So I don't think it was um, a great proposition personally. Elsewhere, mm. you've got um, a bunch of PSP games. So they're still pushing it quite hard. Even though um, the PSP feels like it's pretty badly ravaged by piracy at this point. Like, um, it was sort of cracked <laughs> fairly early on and got yeah. turned into an emulation machine. The same thing happens to the DS. And um, I think it really tanks um, handheld-specific sales around this time. But um, mm-hmm. Gran Turismo you get on PSP this year and at the E3 conference. And Little Big Planet, I played that. It was pretty good. A little version of Little Big Planet. He um, works, Sackboy quite, works quite well on that sort of screen. And um, there was a decent version of Rock Band I remember playing as well. You just press the buttons. You don't have to plug in a guitar to a handheld console. That would be um, right. preposterous. Um, <laughs> PlayStation Home was here yet again. Um, regular listeners will know how much I hate PlayStation Home. Very sort of anodyne uh, virtual world sort of space. Kind of like um, Second Life, but just really corporate and boring. Andy Kelly had a good little story about it when we um, he came on our Best Detective Games episode, if you want to hear that. Sony has uh, Assassin's Creed 2 at their conference. Uh, they show off Da Vinci's flying machine, Ezio kind of like going across um, Venice and uh, sort of like hovering over the little fire things to get more momentum on his flying machine because that's how that works. And um, <laughs> they show off the PlayStation Move. They don't make as big a deal about it as the um, as Microsoft would with uh, the Kinect. And I think that speaks to what you said earlier, Matthew, about how Sony didn't go all in on it in the same way. It was a bit more tentative. It was such a faff, though. Having to have that extra camera move was such a bust. It was such rubbish, a bust. yeah. I mean, it was it set them up quite well for the um, their VR headset. It meant they just had, like, controllers ready to go, probably in a warehouse, unsold. But, um, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, so, um, yeah, I, I I just I had no, no kind of positive feelings towards it at the time. And, yeah, it seemed like a bad idea. They also showed off um, a game called Mod Nation Racers, which was um, like a sort of little big planet, but with karting games. I played that. It was very easy to make tracks, and it was actually quite fun, but I don't think anyone really wanted that on um, on PlayStation. Mm. And um, yeah, the developer who made that actually went on to make Sleeping Dogs. They were quite they were quite cool. I think they were United uh, Front Games or something like that. They were, um, oh, okay. yeah, it's a shame they kind of went away. They seemed like they were promising. Finally, they kind of end with the, the sort of like the, the big guns, basically. This is where you first, you see The Last Guardian for the first time. You've got Gran Turismo 5 and God of War 3 and then live demo to kind of close it out. So pretty strong. Sony's got some actual good games this year. God of War 3 wasn't out by 2009. No, no, it took a long time. I mean, the problem is that the second one only came out in 2007. So 
It was. Oh um, my word, that's, that's messing with my head. I, I swear that was out before Uncharted Two, but obviously not. Yeah, I mean, it was just. Yeah, I think it was quite bad timing for Sony actually because they they talked about it the year before and were obviously desperate to get to get out any kind of good exclusives that they could talk about. Yeah, so that was um, that was Sony. It was uh, not a bad showing. So Xbox, right for Xbox E3 2009, their big thing they they have um, to kick off is the surviving Beatles and um, you know the kind of spouses <laughs> of the Beatles slash children. Basically, if you're you know if you're the most relevant person connected to a Beatle, you were on stage that year um, to reveal Beatles rock band, which was obviously like a quite a big deal for this um, genre that, to be honest, was kind of dying off at this point because they'd mm. absolutely overdone it for several years and it was um, burning brightly and um, would would not last for much longer. And I think if it had released a year earlier, it might have been a different story. That was um, quite a big way to kick off. Strangely long demo for Tony Hawk and that and Tony Hawk Ride, the terrible skateboarding peripheral game. Oh, that was so rank. It was. Did, did that like big plastic board haunt your office for years like it did ours? I feel like that board was fucking like all over. Every time I walk somewhere. It's people tripping over it every once in a while. <laughs> I just cursing. Kept- yeah, I feel like the problem is that when people would see it on a shelf, I think they'd take it off and then like pretend that they were sort of like using a skateboard on it um, in the office, <laughs> and so it would always be in the middle of a floor somewhere. That was a that was a weird thing. Again, like um, it feels like they were just Activision went so big on peripheral games this year. This was a DJ Hero year as well, and it was like just trying to get all this junk into your house. It was um really really cynical. So um, the conference was really loaded though. Had Shadow Complex, Forza 3, not Forza Horizon 3, that's um, many years later. Uh, the re-reveal of uh, Splinter Cell Conviction, which had gone into like some kind of development hell oh, with its previous that, iteration. That was a great demo. Was that the one where he was like smashing heads for urinals? Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was a really... That, that was like a really super sexy E3 demo also, because it had the, the words being projected on the buildings and stuff. I remember thinking, oh, that looks really cool. It looks pretty great for a last gen game. This, like, um, yeah, you look at it. It's actually it's really, really sharp in its presentation and doesn't look kind of flat and stuff. And um, considering the previous version was like, I think they <laughs> internally imagine we referred to it as Hobo Fisher, the original version. Right, of yeah, yeah. <laughs> He's sort of like homeless and he's throwing a phone into a bin, and it's really confusing. And um, this is the kind of deluxe sort of like third person action game version of Splinter Cell that people say dumb it down a little bit, which is probably fair. But oh, was... it does. But it looks spectacular. Yeah, like yeah, every mechanic in this game just looks so cool in a demo and when you're playing it. This is one of those demos where you think, "Oh, this could all be like bullshit," but when you play it, you're like, "Oh, it is actually that." Like, this is how this works. Oh, I love, I love that game. Mm, yeah, I've, I've never played it all the way through actually, so um, I look forward to talking about that. It's the next episode; it will come up right if it if it mm. comes up. Microsoft also has Alan Wake. It was first oh. announced in 2005, and finally there we are on stage seeing it in action. Yeah, I look forward to discussing that one in Best Games of 2010. And um, yeah, the, uh, the the I thought the best bit of the conference was this though. So there's um, Halo Three ODST demo, ODST being this kind of like in between instalment in the um, Halo mm. series. And then at the end, the the guy goes, and that's not all. Um, here's something else that a different team at Bungie is working on for next year. And then there's like the reveal for Halo Reach with a very famous trailer of basically like um, chaos happening on this kind of like alien world. And then there's like you've got Spartans on the ground, and then it says. Uh, reach falls in 2010 or whatever it was just a really good um really good teaser mm. uh so do you remember that matthew being like a big deal i feel like halo reach was the big announcement for us that year like personally because i'm not i'm not like a mega halo head it didn't have like a huge impact on me but i, I remember this being a really exciting conference because it was just sort of like flashy demo and then followed by like a huge reveal i wonder if uh, microsoft ever regrets letting 
Bungie get away. I mean, I mean, I think I feel like that was going to happen well, anyway. Must that's, do. I mean, but, God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's that's what Bungie seemed to want at the time. But um, yeah, and um, you know, Bungie has kind of like got its own independence twice now, and uh, that seems to be their whole thing. So. Yeah, so other than that, they had Left 4 Dead 2 as well. That was a surprise reveal because the previous game had only come out the previous year. So, yep, um, Valve actually making computer games at this point, which they would stop doing very soon. And, um, yeah, and then obviously Microsoft also uh, wheels out Hideo Kojima to announce Metal Gear Rising, which eventually released four years later as Revengeance by an entirely different developer. So um, a bit of a dud, that, I think. They show it at all? No, they show it next year, because he, he comes to um, E3 2010 and shows, I think, like a bit of a gameplay demo. That of this the... is the one where he's like cutting the melon? Yes, yeah, that's the demo they show next year, I believe. Right, that was exciting. Yeah, I think they show, an, maybe they show an image of Raiden this year, but um, you don't see much, basically. And uh, yeah, but it's just the intent of making it. That's really strong. Microsoft has a really kind of good pack of like stuff that quote-unquote core gamers would be interested in. But then, that's when the Project Natal reveal happens. So, Don Matrick comes back on stage. For far too many people, the controller is a barrier, separating players from everyone else. Can we make you the controller? And then um, Steven Spielberg is on stage. Um, don't know why, he never made a game for this thing. But um, there he was to talk about <laughs> some, I mean, just marketing horseshit, basically. But it was, yeah. I, quite, I was quite frustrated watching it back. You're not here to announce anything. You're just like... What are you giving this thing credit? This peripheral credibility just irritated me watching it back. And um, mm. and then um, here comes um, Kudo Sonodo, who becomes like a minor sort of like gaming celebrity over these years, kind of like um, uh, tied to Connect. Um, I sort of always thought of him informally as the Microsoft Bono, um, but uh, <laughs> you know. And then the um, the big thing they show what they show with this um, motion controller thing that you just put in front of your TV and it responds to your. Uh, physical commands is um peter molyneux shows off a, a demo for milo where you interact with a, a small boy and it's kind of like showing that the character responds to different things you say but yeah so that aside yeah obviously that game never manifests but um the connect reveal is the big thing matthew do you remember this do you have any kind of memories or reaction to this my big memory in the office was uh, some people on xbox world gloating that like this was it this was like the end for all other platforms it's like <laughs> you're dead in the water we've got this thing and i remember thinking okay but it's only like a tech demo on a stage let's let's wait and see it's very very easy to do all the big talk about what it's going to do when people aren't actually using it yeah like i say you know from afar there was this sense of you're about to get a dose of what we've been eating for quite a long time i think it's that thing where uh, the actual like intent of it isn't so bad i mean i actually do contest the idea that like you know separating players from everyone else i mean uh, to be honest, if you're requiring physical motions, it's not that accessible a controller. It's actually like cutting a load of people off who um who might want to enjoy games. You know, you've got you're right. You've definitely got like the physical accessibility issue, but you've also got the where and how people want to play games isn't fucking waving their arms around. It's slumped back on a sofa. The, the philosophy that Don Matrick here has has here is is better embodied by Xbox's adaptive controller they made a few years ago, where it's like actually trying to yeah. like extend you know it's it becomes about accessibility and it's it's much more like and the, the problem is that because of how badly the xbox one reveal goes several late years later and because of how he frames the really kind of quite smug way i think he frames this reveal at e3 20 uh, 2009 makes him seem like a, I'm, I'm so corporate i don't even understand what it is that you're interested in and obviously like phil spencer is the opposite of that he's super like conscious of how xbox is perceived 
And um, mm. yeah, so it's funny because obviously his tenure, Matrick, has plenty of great games come out, but it seems to kind of fritter away to next year. It's like one of the, a memorably bad Xbox conference, I would say, aside from a couple of reveals. So um, that's um, that's the, the uh, Xbox and uh, Sony covered, um, Matthew. But what about Nintendo this year? New Super Mario Brothers Wii was their big, big first reveal. Hilariously, Cammy Donnelly came out on stage and gave it all this big talk. She said, For the last 15 years, Mr. Miyamoto has been thinking of a new way to play Mario that has never been possible before. And apparently the solution to that was quite a threadbare 2D Mario with three idiots who get in your way the whole time. I found this so underwhelming. To follow up Galaxy with this was just, like, laughable. And I know there's some people who swear by this game and they love the multiplayer mechanics of it. I just didn't think it was elegant. Did you find this really underwhelming? Well, I was struggling a bit with Wii games generally at the time because they looked so rancid on my TV. I thought this looked incoherent, yeah. I I must confess, I don't remember having many strong feelings on it. But I remember someone in the office went and bought it for 40 quid, completed it in like a day. And and I I wasn't very impressed with it as a proposition. It made complete sense just because New Super Mario Bros. on DS you know was one of their biggest sellers but it was just a pure business decision you know there was no magic to it at all and that filled me with gloom off the bat then you have Wii Motion Plus with Wii Sports Resort I always found the pitch for this really odd in that it was basically just what the Wii was meant to do to begin with all the promotional material for it is actually pretty similar to the promotional material before they launch the Wii. It feels like you're selling me what you've already sold me. I think it does work really well. I do eventually really like Wii Sports Resort. It's not in my top 10 games of this year, but it, it felt like they were just reheating a promise, which is, is quite a hard sell. And also at this point, we had like major peripheral fatigue. As the big two headline things, they were quite disappointing. Iwata came out and talked about the Wii Vitality Sensor, which was really good fun on Endgamer. We didn't really know what it was, so we could just joke about it, about how kind of daft the, the notion of it was. We ran a series of back pages over the following months, adverts for this from different ages of history. So there was like a Victorian Mr. Awata's extraordinary sensor scope, and then there was this uh, kind of art deco-y kind of for vitality or something with this kind of hand with the vitality sensor on the end. So it was a good Endgamer thing to happen, but it was also quite baffling to give over a kind of 10-minute chunk of, a, of quite a small show to basically making the pitch for like further pushing out into, into the casual audience in that you were going to kind of go into healthcare, um, which on a games mag like, isn't a great line. But then around that, they, they had a lot of games I was into. My obvious favourite, Final Fantasy Crystal Chronicles, Crystal Bearers, <laughs> um, which I'm a big fan of. Um, you know, they announced Golden Sun, which I ended up really, really loving on DS. A terrible Kingdom Hearts game. There was a weird partnership with James Patterson and THQ on on uh, Women's Murder Club, Games of Passion. Nintendo themselves had sort of let the touch generation slip a little bit. And I think they saw this as like, a, well, mum's like book. Mm. by james patterson the women's murder club so let's let's push that on stage well, but it was such a budget game i mean, that was a real like five out of ten should <laughs> never have really been on that stage they should have called it women's murder club games of patterson <laughs> yeah i also object to them referring to james patterson as the king the king of mystery writing um <laughs> Which is, I mean, maybe in terms of money, but come on. That's got to be um, the most uh, Matt Castle-specific note on an E3 conference. <laughs> yeah, I was like, huh, Keigo Higashino uh, may disagree with that. <laughs> <laughs> um, 
But it's rounded out with Mario Galaxy 2 and Metroid Other M, which were both total surprise announcements. That's always good with Nintendo. They don't tend to leak. Well, back then they certainly didn't. Mario Galaxy 2, obviously, instant 10 out of 10 excitement for that. Metroid Other M, it takes quite a chunk of that trailer to actually get to it being a Metroid game. Quite exciting, I remember, at the time. So I remember thinking, is this Star Fox? Yeah, and it's not until her kind of suit builds around her. And as a reveal, this was super exciting, this, this kind of new iteration of this hero. Mm. The game... I thought it looked absolutely amazing. Like visually, I, it was a really, it was a really strong game. People had mixed feelings about the final product, but it left us on a really a, a pleasant note. I think you know you can't really be too upset when you're getting Mario Galaxy Two and an exciting looking Metroid game. One thing I wish they hadn't done was promote the Conduit. Which, <laughs> did you ever play the Conduit? No, I mean I could see what the deal was from the outside looking in. Oh, it was like it was yeah. so shit. This was a story I fucking hated covering this game on on Endgamer because there were a lot of Nintendo fans who had a bee in their bonnet that their games didn't look as good as the 360 and the PS3 obviously like look at the hardware like this is just this is the way it is going to be you had this company came along who were like oh we're gonna you know we're really about visuals we're about you know we've got all these these next gen techniques which you can't get in any Nintendo games that may have been true but they made with it probably the one of the worst first-person shooters I've ever played from, like, an art style. So drab. But because they were the cheerleaders of, of graphics, all these people gave them a pass and elevated this game way beyond what it should ever be. It felt like you had to cover it because it was such a big thing at the time. IGN gave this so much oxygen, they should never have given it. It was terrible. It was a real kind of triumph of marketing messaging, wasn't it? Because... Oh, just... That- but, like, look at it. People are like, oh, yeah, but it's got all this, like, interesting shading going on. It's Look at the art design. Oh man, high voltage games. He made this. What a stinker, Rooney. <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny that because um, yeah, I, I do remember that marketing messaging being so sort of like loud and like oh wow, look like a like a game that people would play on Xbox but on Wii and it no. was like it would be laughed at if it was on any other platform. Yeah, I was like, well, you know, I mean, the people who want to play like a good first person shooter have probably bought one of the other platforms that are playing Halo 3, a game that's like, you know, just, infinitely better. But It wasn't just the game itself. The people who were cheerleading for it and the fans who wanted it to be good, it made us, it made Nintendo fans look desperate and grasping. People just bowled over by the idea of like, yes, yes, graphics, graphics. And you're like, you know, we're better than this. Like, we, we hold things to our highest standard. We are Nintendo fans. We expect good games, but... I don't know. Maybe I'm a bit of a zealot on that. Well, it looks uh, it looks pretty terrible. I mean, like you say, the art style, I'm just looking at it now. Um, it feels like their big thing was lighting. Like really limited linear corridor shooter, which allows them to do some slightly snazzy stuff. But like compared to Metroid Prime 3, an absolute embarrassment. Well, the Conduit looks like a, a worse version of Metroid Prime, Prime basically. Like, uh, it doesn't even oh. look as nice as the GameCube Metroid Prime, the first one. So I, don't mean, I don't mean my Conduit rage to bubble up, but at the time, <laughs> this was just... Because we had people, like, you know, on forums or writing letters going, like, why aren't you writing more about the Conduit? Why aren't you supporting the Conduit? Have some dignity, people. It's funny, though, this conference actually did feel... It did seem like it was slightly better overall than the 2008 one. It somehow felt like it was a bit oh. of a response to the response for the 2008 one, where it's like... Way but way better. Just in terms of the actual solid game. Like, if you put a, if you put the final score next to all those games, they are... It's, it's way healthier. Than, than that first one. I don't have loads to add to that other than that I um I played uh, Wii Sports Resort and thought it was a lot better than Wii Sports actually. I thought it was um it was it's good. great. 
Yeah, yeah it's the table tennis. I really love. Uh, I really liked the sword fighting in it. I thought that was great. It, it felt like a testing ground for all the mechanics for Skyward Sword. A lot of them are lifted directly from We Sports for Thought, <laughs> and like the sword play handles a lot like the sword play, and the archery has got exactly the same kind of energy. So um, yeah, it was like quite a lot of. Um, well, there's another light gun shooter there as well, Matthew, which was Dead Space Extraction. Is that? Um... I didn't really like it. It looks a bit cheap, we, I thought. We were quite cool on it as a magazine, but then other people are really into it. I think it's got a couple of like standout sort of set pieces which are quite like grody by sort of Dead Space, you know, a bit like the eye laser thing. Mm. And it was nice to see someone trying quite hard. I, I found it a little kind of plodding from what I played of it. I don't think I ever finished it, actually. Okay, good stuff. Well, yeah, I mean, it's on paper there are there's lots of good stuff there, but it's that. The overall thing that obviously Microsoft was borrowing here was that kind of like one for them, one for you approach to E3 conferences. And now that doesn't exist. Like, you know, a Nintendo Direct is functionally made for Nintendo fans tuning in because now Nintendo doesn't really delineate between type types of players and player bases, you know, learn their lesson quite harshly on where that kind of leads you, I think. So now they're just like, mm. well, it's it's all core. And then we try and make it so people outside the core can kind of enjoy it or there's like some games that core will enjoy that regular person might not be bothered about like metroid dread where it's like you know it's one it's made for diehard nintendo fans i think my feeling actually re-watching this conference last night the nintendo one was that if this was done in the style of a modern nintendo direct that kind of pacing and framing i think this would actually weirdly be considered a bit of a triumph (laughs) you might be right actually yeah yeah i mean if you strip out like the, I don't know, four or five slightly naff announcements, I mean, that's why I'm quite, actually quite surprised that you're bothered about the new Super Mario Bros. thing because they announced uh, Mario Galaxy 2. So it's not like you were watching Mario go in a different direction, but you didn't have something else to look forward to. I was just depressed that they were making something that looked so bland. There were casual Nintendo things which, which weren't aimed at me, but this felt like something that probably should or could have been aimed at me, but it, it really looked like they were like phoning it in. Mm compared yeah. to some of their other games. There's a couple of people I really respect who really, really rate this game. You know, a couple of, like, Nintendo brains I really respect, but it was just... Oh, just so bland, so bland. And it was this idea that, like, this is, like, Miyamoto's big idea. You know, this is a big idea from Miyamoto, and it was so flat to me. I was like, oh, no, is he past it? It didn't matter, because they've got this other team, but it's a bit sad. Yeah, it's just a proper sort of, like, 7 out of 10. I, I, I played it and just felt felt nothing. I just thought, well, I mean, this that's is just... This, this, that should the, the never happen in a, in a mainstream, in mainline Mario game. That yeah. shouldn't happen. They just want they just wanted like my mum and my dad to play you know play this game with me, and it was like, well, I I I was so anti that approach, which is a very like you know typical sort of gamer boy um, attitude. <laughs> yeah. But but I mean, let's let's be honest, it didn't it didn't turn into anything long term. So it was kind of a failed experiment. All the people who like would play games on Wii well, now just play games on mobile phones. So I mean, you know, it sold mega numbers. Yeah, in the moment, absolutely. It was like I mean, it's much so, bigger you know, than Mario It probably outsells Galaxy 1 and 2 combined. So, mm. you know, yeah. more for me, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. But no, I, I you think your sort of malaise with um, Nintendo at this time is um, it's noted for sure. So, um, yeah, good stuff, Matthew. So the only other two things I was going to mention in terms of major news that happens this year, not loads of stuff, but Microsoft shuts Ensemble Studios, the Age of Empires developers. Um, you know, years later, it, it would revive Age of Empires. But at this time, uh, Microsoft was basically the enemy of PC gaming. Games Windows Live was um, a thing and, uh, you know, almost destroyed um, PC gaming. And then um, Valve kind of brings it back a few years later. 
And uh, yeah, and so alongside that, Square Enix buys Idos. So Idos kind of like struggling for a few years, and then Square Enix um, suddenly owns like Tomb Raider and um, uh, Hitman and a bunch of other stuff. And this was good from a press perspective because my memory of Square Enix UK office before Idos was that they basically got you no access to anything. Like it was like a, it was like a, a shack in a desert or something. Like. Um, there was, if you wanted to interview Tetsuya Nomura, it was never going to happen under any circumstances. But right. when um, they basically buy IDOS and turn IDOS into the Square Enix kind of like headquarters, and suddenly they're doing stuff like events where there are Japanese devs there and stuff. So um, mm. I think this is probably a probably a good thing. But um, yeah, yeah, opening up that those kind of communication and access. That's I didn't realize it was like that beforehand. Oh yeah, I mean, I just I remember I couldn't get anything. There were like a couple of nice people at Square Enix at the t- uh, before IDOS, but you just couldn't get anything out of them. Like um, they just didn't do events, they didn't do interviews. It was just like how can you know Final Fantasy was so badly represented in the West? It was really bizarre. So um, mm. yeah, savvy move. But um, yep, other than that, Matthew, I think we're um, we're basically wrapped up. So um, should we take a short break and come back with our top tens? Let's do it. Welcome back to the podcast. So we're going to get onto our top ten games of two thousand nine now. So um, you've had like uh, over an hour of preamble, uh, maybe too much preamble. Matthew will decide that in the edit. But um, <laughs> basically, yeah, we always want to lay the sort of like what the landscape out was, so um, people have that context going into the top tens. A big difference with this one to um, the previous episodes is that we're going to do our honourable mentions after the list because me and Matthew are a bit worried about preempting each other's responses. So we don't know Ooh. what the other ones picked for the top ten, and um, we want it to be a surprise. So we will. This is alternate. where your number one is the conduit. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what we'll do is we'll alternate as usual. So we'll start with number ten and count down. If um, one person has a game higher than the other, but it's the same game, I've explained that really badly. If one person has a one game higher than the other, but it's to say, oh, fuck me, I cannot explain this very well. Um, I'm leaving that in. Uh, <laughs> okay, let me, let me try. Okay. If we've both picked the same game, then we'll talk about it when um, whoever's got it highest, it comes up in their list, basically. Yeah. Um, I always struggle to explain that one, but um, <laughs> it'll make sense when you listen to it. So, number 10. Matthew, let's start with you. So, what's your number 10? My number 10 is a Yuji Naka game. What? It is Let's Tap for ah, me. You've mentioned this on a previous episode about it being surprisingly rad. It's published by Sega, developed by Prope, Yuji Naka's outfit at the time. This is a real only Sega could make it. The kind of stuff people used to love about the Dreamcast, it's got that similar arcade hangover energy. It is a game which you control entirely by tapping near the remote. You don't actually hold the Wii remote. You place it down uh, on a box. The game came with two cardboard boxes flat packed that you'd fold out uh, or you could use it recommended using the original Wii console box you place the remote on it and then you tap the box and the remote picks up the vibrations of your tapping to control a series of quite simple mini games it can really only differentiate between weak taps and strong taps so they're very simple games it's more about like the rhythm of the taps I guess so one of them is a on-foot race 
where you build your character's momentum by doing rhythmic small taps and then you do a big heavy tap to make them jump over hurdles or jump over obstacles. A surprisingly good multiplayer game, that, because you just have a load of people with remotes and you're all tapping away. You know, you don't even have to know how to use buttons. Everyone can kind of get their head around it. It's a great pick-up-and-play um, I love the rhythm game in this. It's, again, really simple, quite like um, the Donkey Konga game on the GameCube in that you're just tapping away to a tune. If you love kind of, you know, drumming your fingers on your leg when you're listening to music or whatever, it's that, the game, but play to these just awesomely poppy, sort of vibrant Sega dance tracks. I will definitely use the track Tap de Papaya in this, which is... Like the theme tune from Let's Tap, which a lady sings about how we're going to tap a lot. <laughs> uh, <laughs> this is just so simple, so well executed. The four main games, and then there's like a weird sort of visual, music visualizer, but the four main games, I think they're all winners, really. There's like a Jenga thing, there's the rhythm thing, a race thing, and then like a shootery thing. I, I just thought this was so much fun. We played this quite a bit in the office multiplayer because as long as you had multiple controllers, you didn't need lots of nunchucks or extra guff for it. Everyone could just get in and play it. Great music, great style, great attitude. This this is like a, a, a the sort of silly, pure fun Sega I, I wish they'd kind of do more of. Mm, interesting, yeah. I, You know, that's the fourth podcast in a row where Yushin has come up, um, you know, delighted, obviously. But um, this, this actually... is my favourite Yushin Acker game. <laughs> Being honest, this is exactly the kind of game that like games journalists of my generation wouldn't have taken seriously. Like the Wii wasn't taken that seriously in my office, and I'm sure it was the same for you as well. And yeah. I feel like people wouldn't have engaged with this game's whole deal. Oh, but... This this reviewed well. I thought. Well, I guess they found the Nintendo head on every team. To, um, like Keza reviewed it for Eurogamer and was really into it. Hmm. It came out the year before. I mean, we were quite into the Japanese version when it came out. So uh, you know, then we got the UK version as well. The US version sadly didn't come with the boxes, which I always thought was a shame. So you just had to find your own surface to tap. But I love that it had this big weird kind of orange box you had to make up to just to sort of play it. it just really super weird. Someone. Like coming at the Wii remote from the completely different angle to everyone else, wrapped up in that sort of summary kind of energy of of the best Sega games. Also, a minor shout out alongside this to uh, Prope also made a game called Let's Catch for WiiWare this year, which was just a, a catch and throw, but it had this really nice sort of uh, pincer. You catch the ball by pressing the A in the trigger on the Wii remote, so you're kind of clenching the remote, and it was just very tactile and pleasant, pleasantly done. Yeah, I did play um, Let's Catch, actually. I did own that. and It, it was, was sweet. Um, yeah, it was a sweet fun. little thing. Yeah, it was fun. It's uh, Like so many you know, games, it's a, WiiWare games, it's a shame that it's just doomed to um, basically, yeah. like if you either downloaded it and you still have it, or it's gone forever. So um, yeah, mm. that's uh, that's tough. So they should bring out Let's Tap for the Switch. Yeah, it feels like that would work pretty well. It would still work. Yeah, the yeah. text in the same in the controller. I've got a few boxes in my flat. I think I can make that happen. But um, <laughs> yeah. So my number ten, then Matthew. Can I shock you by saying that I've got a sports game at number ten? What? It's, yeah, I know it's not very me, but oh, I hope you're not going to come and wedgie me after this one. <laughs> yeah, and uh, flush your head down the toilet. No, um, <laughs> yeah. my number ten is Fight Night Round Four. So uh... I'm not a boxing guy. I don't know anything about boxing. I um, I but I got mega into this. So Fight Night Round Three came out in the early days of the HD console, so it was kind of like a technical showcase for like you know skin textures and physical reactions and stuff. 
this kind of refines it. I guess I, I kind of see them as fighting games, but I know that like that community's got a very clear idea of what is or isn't a fighting game. So, but I don't care what mm. they think, what they think, to be honest. Um, so I'd fancy the chances of a boxing fan against a Street Fighter fan. <laughs> <laughs> oh, that's amazing! Now, now I want to see that um, play out. But um, yeah, this is like a basically a fighting game where it's controlled via the second stick, all of your punches. So you sort of like loop the stick around to do like an uppercut and you just like tap it to the to the right to do like a you know like a jab or whatever and yeah all of the different sort of controls are are mapped to the second stick ea was doing a lot of this at the time for its sports games and sometimes it didn't work very well here i thought it worked incredibly well and um unlike fighting games obviously boxing is like nine rounds or is it ten rounds i think it's ten actually i see i know nothing about boxing (laughs) i had no idea (laughs) and it becomes like a very long game of endurance and um the magic to this is the counter-attack. So you have like um, a few blocking and dodging motions you can do. And when someone like misses like a jab and then you, you come back with like um, like an uppercut, uh, the, the camera zooms in and there's like a flash on the screen and, and a really like big rumble in the controller. And it feels really good to just like hit someone in the face. And like um, that as a kind of dynamic while you're being worn down yourself is actually like really dramatic and fun. I thought this was just amazing. And... Like I say, it wasn't a sports guy, but we had like a spare copy in the office. I took it home and I played it all year. I I, I played like a career mode with um, Mike Tyson. I think I took him through about like 12 years of his career. I just played loads of it. And um, it was tough because I, I kicked out. Did you out. get to the ear biting bit? <laughs> oh, dear. Um, Is that oh. a quick time event? <laughs> Dark. Jesus Christ. Uh, you got to keep that in the podcast, even though I think it's quite tasteless. Um <laughs> So yeah, uh, <laughs> uh, yeah, like there's a there's a whole like divorce mini game. That's uh, that's good fun. Um, no, I'm joking. But um, yeah, so really, really good. I, I just really love this. Um, there's a, another version that comes out a couple of years later, Fight Night Champion, which has a story mode in it and is probably like a better version of this. I, it's actually backwards compatible with Xbox um, One and Series X as well, and um, still looks great. I don't think that EA's made another one of these games in like a decade, but. Um, yeah, Fight Night, Matthew. I've surprised mm. you by putting boxing in there. I, I, I can't no, imagine I, you have many questions to me about this one. I remember always being like wowed by these when you'd see them in the office because they were like such a visual showcase. They looked they looked absolutely amazing. I've I've just got no like feel for the the, the rhythm of the sport. I guess um, I've always been terrible at them, but you know, definitely like to watch them and ooh and ah at the uh, you know bits of lip getting split and stuff (laughs) jesus make yourself sound like a sicko i think what's funny is as well that um so this is like a hardcore ea game it just happens to be a sports game but um what i found funny is that if you pick muhammad ali you you basically have like a massive advantage over your opponents and he kind of breaks the game because he's so tall and he's got like such long arms and what you realize is that was just Muhammad Ali <laughs> boxing. Like he right. was just he was built in a way that kind of like, you know, made him the best boxer. Like his physical form was perfect for it. So, so you're basically he's... saying he's only famous because he was boxing <laughs> on easy mode. <laughs> well, it's just when you fight him as Mike Tyson in the game, which you can do because it lets you pick boxers from across time, I guess. Um, time traveling boxing matches. Like Mike Tyson's just really little and like has to like get really close to do damage to him, whereas Muhammad Ali could just twat him from like miles away. He's got the advantage of a long arms, but he's got the disadvantage in that he's permanently terrified of all the modern technology because he doesn't <laughs> understand what era he's been pulled into <laughs> in the game. The thing about this game that I got, I got quite into the minutia of it, and it has commentary. This game. 
uh, from two guys. I know nothing about them, right? They're like boxing guys on ESPN. One's called Teddy Atlas, and the other guy's called Joe Tessator. These are just like made-up names. Preposterous names. And their commentary is just like bizarre and droning on. And like Joe Tessator will jump in every now and then and just go... Uh, when my mum used to make pasta, she made it al dente. That boxer's legs are not al dente, and I was just uh, barking <laughs> out complete bullshit like that. And I got, <laughs> I got really into the kind of like nonsense side of that. I That's just thought, probably like boxing chatter gold. That's what people want to hear. <laughs> yeah, they want to so, hear like analysis combined with kind of sort of like Italian nostalgia. <laughs> <laughs> yeah and the other fu- the other funny thing is with this i ve- i played it online a couple of times right and um <laughs> both times the player came online kept mashing the headbutt button and then like <laughs> got disqualified after like a minute and that happened twice so that was the only time i ever played this online but um i found that really funny i'll just go online press the cheat button to troll this player and then get <laughs> get disqualified so there we go fight night round four matthew um bit of a surprise entry but you can tell from the way i talk about it i've got a lot of oh yeah for sure that's that's that sounds like a great pick yeah okay so what's your number nine Uh, my number nine is assassin's creed 2 (gasps) that's much higher on my list well then we will we'll park that for a later chat Mm -hmm. i'm actually quite surprised you got it so low but um, we'll talk about that later so Mm -hmm. my number nine is red faction gorilla i can't imagine this on your list this was on my long list of things that i played and quite liked i will say up front I, I probably only played about five or six hours of this because I got my fill of all the destruction and then I kind of hated the campaign. Hmm. So that's kind of my Red Faction take. <laughs> I think that's fair criticism. Um, like the, you play the campaign once and you kind of move on. And the problem with the campaign is once you've destroyed all the big buildings, there's nothing left to blow up. So you're just driving around like an empty Mars landscape. <laughs> a really sad, sad man with just a car full of bombs. <laughs> <laughs> Basically, yeah. But the um, the key to this game's like longevity is getting into the um, uh, wrecking crew mode, which um, mm. I think it's called that. Which is like a, basically a mini game mode where you're put in a, a sort of bespoke environment that's got a lot of stuff you can destroy, and there's like a score attack of um, you know you pick your weapons and then um, do as much damage as possible with leaderboards. And uh, I got into that massively, and so did a friend of mine, and we were like we really dug it, and we still play it together. So. Um, yeah, it's a third-person shooter set on Mars with a really boring campaign that kind of rips off Firefly. It's got the, um, it's got like um, I think the Reavers from Firefly are represented here as like it's a very similar kind of faction, like a native Martian faction, and then just some boring sci-fi corporation bullshit. All of that is nonsense. This is a game about take your big hammer, knock down that building. That's the game. So um, yeah, did you have anything else to add on this one, Matthew? The tech is incredible. The, yeah. the building destruction and the way that you could take out the lower levels and it would creak and begin to fall realistically. I mean, I just wish this tech was used in a better game and I still hope that it one day will be. A, yeah. a huge missed opportunity, but also like an absolute must-see, weirdly. Yeah, I think I agree with that. Like, it's, it's a real shame that the only other game that would use this technology is a, a fucking terrible sequel to this game that comes out several years later that is set underground for some reason and doesn't have any big <laughs> buildings to blow up. Fucking rubbish. But um, mm. yeah, I think it was just maybe a victim of THQ running out of money and having big problems at this time. So you never got to see it reach its full potential. But who knows? Mm. Volition still exists. I don't know. I'd love to see a Saints Row with this tech in it, but I don't think it's ever going to happen. Um, mm. Falling, mm. Uh, collapsing uh, buildings, probably not good optics. But um, mm. yeah. What's, uh, <laughs> what's your number eight, Matthew? My number eight is GTA Chinatown Wars. Interesting. Almost made my list. Didn't quite. But um, yeah, a great pick for sure. 
you know, something we talk a lot about on this podcast is just being wowed when someone makes effort on your often ignored hardware. This is a great example of this. This is, uh, I mean, actually Rockstar generally across the board with their Wii ports and Wii versions of their games tried really hard and did some really great stuff. This bespoke GTA aimed at the Nintendo DS uh, pulled out all the stops on a technical level. It's an absolutely gorgeous version of that kind of top-down, older GTA style of GTA 1 and 2, done with sort of cell shading, but kind of married to the storytelling sensibility and the sort of some more of the sophistication of the kind of later kind of Rockstar North GTAs. Makes amazing use of the DS with all these like weird little mini-games, which should be naff, things like hot-wiring a car and like diffusing bombs and missions and things. But actually the variety and the execution of them is is really impressive. Like for my money, easily my favourite of this kind of top-down GTA style. Like I, I really thought they kind of elevated it and and kind of beefed out the ideas from, from the earlier games. So even if it looks a little bit like them, it's it's got this very different energy to it. It's got this incredibly compelling drug dealing element to it, which sounds super sinister when you say it out loud. And it's kind of mad that this was a big Nintendo-pushed game. Like, this was on the cover of official Nintendo, which I always thought was wild, given it had quite a much younger audience than we did. That's just me being jealous that we didn't have it on our cover. (laughs) But it had this drug-dealing game where you'd buy drugs at one part of the city, and then you could basically buy them and then try and, like, sell them high in areas where there was a drug shortage. And it was, like, surprisingly well thought out, and I I liked the kind of micromanagement of driving around, trying to kind of build a fortune from you know sneaky drug dealing which in a way like lent the game this kind of overarching like mechanical structure that's sort of arguably missing from all the other gtas like it still has the individual story missions but it has this sort of very light management element on top that kind of ties the whole thing together in in quite a satisfying manner just a real showcase so much love and care i never played the other versions that they did i know they ported it to like psp and um I think there's like an Android iPhone version, but for me, this this felt like it it really belonged and lived on DS. Yeah, so I have played the PSP version of this and the DS version, and the DS version obviously has all of these touchscreen mini games, Matthew, like the um, like you say, light lock picking and stuff like that, hmm. and um, uh, uh, un- unscrewing radios. Is that right? I um, yeah, that kind of yeah, yeah, all that good stuff. Yeah, so. <laughs> That is very like bespoke to the DS. I'm sure that works okay on the phone version, but I remember the PSP one thinking this doesn't quite fit as well. The PSP one compensates by having like really nice visuals. It's got it ditches the cell shading style of this and mm. is a bit more kind of classical GTA style, I guess. And so, um, you know, there's pros and cons for both. But um, yeah, as a DS release, I thought this was a big deal. I definitely um, went out of my way to get my hands on it. I didn't finish it, but I did play quite a lot of it and. I do agree that I thought the main character was pretty developed. It's like a you know a, a Chinese GTA protagonist, quite an interesting yeah, choice. Yeah. Um, and so um, you know for the time as well, like you know Rockstar, I think get a bit of flack for you know a lot of things, but uh, I thought it was an interesting creative choice and quite mm. well written. It was also um, it was the GTA Four version of Liberty City as well, wasn't it? So you had like yes, two of the right, islands. Yeah. Um, so you had like. Yeah, the first two islands, basically, to explore. Yeah. And, um, yeah, I remember it feeling like a pretty good facsimile. You could go to Star Junction and stuff, and it was all there. Um, it's, it's, it's interesting, because around the time, there was a couple of other DS games which tried doing the GTA open world thing, like, in a 3D style. Like, if you tried to make GTA 3 on 
on a DS. Um, I think one was called Cop the Recruit, and they were terrible. The DS just couldn't do that 3D world convincingly. So their decision to do the top-down thing was just so smart. This look, this did look amazing for a DS game. I thought it really did. Yeah, it's, um, I just picked up the DS version of this a few weeks ago, actually. So um, I look forward to the Games Court retrial and verdict on this. I feel like it's going to oh, go. This, my is, this is not guilty on this one. This is, this is a great pick. <laughs> I don't know why I even let I ever let my original copy go. I should have just finished is it. it but, how hard is it to find these days? Uh, I think I, I think I paid something like eighteen quid for it. Like it's okay. it, you know, it's not like one of those DS games like a Carmiden or. Um, ghost trick where you're paying like 60 quid or something it's a bit more reasonable mm. than that so yeah it's um and then um if you've got like a ps vita you can just download the psp version on there for about i think like 15 quid or something so um yeah easy to get but yeah great choice matthew i i, I did think about this but i i just don't remember enough about it and um who knows maybe there'll be another rockstar game higher up my list so uh mm. yeah so my number eight matthew is dragon age origins so oh, not on my list mm, uh, th- I, this almost didn't make my list and that there's a very clear reason for that so i played this at the time on xbox 360 i've since played it on pc which is where you're supposed to play it like um big kind of like cuts were kind of made to to take this sort of like last gasp of the boulder skate style rpg but with this you know quite nice modern um bioware presentation didn't look as nice as mass effect and mm. um to try and take out all of the the kind of tactical battle elements, they kind of just tried to make it into more of a Mass Effect experience on Xbox, and it compromises it a bit too much, I think. On um, PC, you can zoom the camera out and have like a top-down view of your party and set traps and things like that. On um, Xbox, it was a bit more automated; it didn't quite work quite as well. But nonetheless, mm. you know, a grand fantasy adventure. It's, it's uh, I, I have not finished Inquisition, but this um, this felt like a really complete big portrayal of an interesting world um not as interesting as mass effect i don't think thematically but had a really kind of memorable set of party members like alistair and morrigan and who were fun to kind of like um go around with and like a big uh, and a really kind of good origin system as well where you pick um you know your species but you also pick the situation of your species and that informs the entire story hence the name mm. origins and um yeah all of the different origins are worth seeing actually and then um the, yeah, the way that kind of like affects the story is really cool, and then has all the Bioware stuff of romance and um, friendships and things like that. So, uh, yeah, I really rated it. Did you ever play this one, Matthew? Yeah, I did. I actually played this series completely out of order, though. I I actually played Inquisition was my first one, hmm. um, and then they gave this away. I think free on PC on EA, whatever it is, their their little loader Origin. system. Yeah. origin that's it yeah yeah and played it then uh and yeah i like i liked it i like the you know i like their the depth of their worlds and the kind of the world building of it and yeah the little bespoke intros is is, is really neat there are a few more hurdles for me with fantasy worlds for me to kind of really get into them and get my head around them you know it's, it's not something i like naturally gravitate towards a good start of a series that i'm glad exists <laughs> yeah for sure it was um a bit of a surprise as well because um i for a long time this was positioned as a pc release and a console version just seemed to sort of sneak up has a really interesting distinction though i think eurogamer gave the console one a six and gave the um, pc one an eight or a nine um mm. so that sort of speaks to the differences between them if you're playing it now absolutely play on pc it's quite um obviously this kind of type of uh, rpgs had a big revival but a lot of pc players frustrations with later dragon age games is that, is that they abandon this stuff to be a bit more mass effecty personally i quite like that because i'm just i know a terrible casual i guess but um yeah i am i'm, I'm very fond of the later uh, dragon age games but yeah i think the choices i'm interested in making in these games 
um you know, I, I like more like the narrative things rather than getting into the nitty gritty of very complex like mechanical builds and things. Yeah. So the sort of simplicity of of the of well, the relative simplicity of Inquisition and the Mass Effect it just speaks to me more on that level. Mm, absolutely, good call. So, what's your number seven, Matthew? My number seven is Professor Layton and Pandora's Box. Didn't make my list, as I'm sure won't surprise you. But um, yeah, yeah. So, is this the second entry in the series? It's the second entry. Uh, for me, it's the second best game. We are yet to reach the best Professor Layton. The kind of combination of charming storytelling and neat puzzles. I mean, that's what underpins the whole Professor Layton kind of thing this just being the second entry is just a bit more confident a bit slicker uh they present the puzzles with more like interesting bespoke interfaces there's more variety to the puzzles the story is better it's it's a um a slightly more menacing tale like juicy and mystery elements to it that you know it begins on this sort of strange train journey which you know obviously has lots of like connotations for famous train based mysteries and you go to this sort of town with a gothic feeling mystery it's got an absolute dazzler of a twist i mean truly truly bonkers this is a series that does you know they do improve on it down the line but this this is uh yeah just a, a a very competent bit of sequel making i like the world i like the vibe of Leighton, and uh, i was just still very much looking forward to these as almost like yearly releases at this point so it was like a just a fun thing to be a fan of at the time mm, yeah i bet i bet it was um very uh very important to you working at endgamer i was um wondering is the twist more baffling than um curious villagers they're all robots actually uh nonsense um is- yeah i mean I, I can tell you what it is if you want to know and people can skip ahead 20 <sighs> seconds i feel like i've been bad i've been bad giving away the curious village um twist there actually i won't but, give it away then it's it's wild they get crazier and crazier as they go on um but this one about how yeah the strange goings on in this town and this sort of seeming vampire figure who kind of rules over it the explanation for it is is bonkers particularly for a nintendo game <laughs> it, it turned out the um uh, patriots wise men's committee died a hundred years ago matthew um, and the philosopher's <laughs> legacy has been um yeah. that's cool yeah i um what is it that they kind of refine about the puzzles over time then like um i, I like the puzzle in the first one there's only a few where i thought this is baffling but i thought they were pretty elegantly done so what they, kind of they, improves were, they were but i think and these are we're talking about quite subtle changes here you know there's a lot where you just like input a number or a word and like the, the interface of these things get better but there's there's some there's some sort of like like more spatial puzzles or puzzles that you kind of interact with playing pieces and there's things where you kind of draw little roots on there's just a more variety to the way you're kind of inputting your answers also i think they do a better job of matching the nature of the puzzles to what's going on in the story. So it's like Leighton has to cross this icy lake and then there's a puzzle about guiding him across the lake rather than Leighton goes to a lake and meets a bloke who asks him a thing about mice, you know? <laughs> yes. Yeah. It, it it feels it feels less contrived. And it's still, I mean I'd say a good eighty percent of the puzzles are still like, hello there. Um Here's, here's, uh, I'm really struggling with this, this puzzle about string. And you're like, oh, okay, I, I better, I better help. But it, it makes more of an effort 
to tie things together or like can you open there's a mysterious door and the puzzle is like the weird lock on the door for example oh that makes sense yeah i mean i just that is funny in curious village actually where it's like oh there's a very portly man here eating lots of like ham and he's like by the way there's um two thin boys and one fat boy um need to use <laughs> yeah. this boat to get across a lake and it's like <laughs> it's true that it's a bit uh yeah bit of a stretch but um yeah. that's good well i'm sure we'll see later in the pier in future lists as well matthew um no yeah. doubt yeah, I've um, I bought this and I will play it. I know I say that a lot, but I definitely will because I actually yeah, it's um, good. Yeah. It's uh, just very Christmassy. For some reason, I always put this uh, in the same kind of box uh, as the room games. In that uh, they're just very gentle little puzzlers that I enjoy kind of poking and prodding away at. Good kind of autumn, kind of Christmassy games. We should do that as a list, um, a podcast down the line. Like um, good, good Christmassy games. That'd be cool. Yeah. Oh, I love a, a game with a Christmassy energy, but yeah. not necessarily set at Christmas. <laughs> mm. Oh, yeah, that's good. Yeah. Ma- Matthew will wear a jumper for that episode. I mean, you won't be able yeah. to see it, but you can imagine it. Um, okay. So my number seven is Halo Three ODST. Is this on your list? It's not. So this was obviously a sort of standalone spinoff from the Halo series. It's about these um, uh, ODST soldiers who land on this city that's been attacked by the Covenant and basically um, kind of like all land separately and have to sort of like reunite and then do something. to. I think the, the city's going to be destroyed and they have to get out of there with some kind of information or something. I'll be honest, the overarching story is not that interesting to me. and mm-hmm. um, But I have played this again very recently on the um, excellent uh, Master Chief collection. I played this on Xbox One, and even on Xbox One, the frame rate's really nice, and it looks really good in HD. So, um, But you can obviously play this on PC as well. It's kind of told in vignettes. It's like um, you basically play like one soldier who's finding the like helmets and the um, kind of like diary entries, basically, of the previous soldiers, and it tells the story of what happened to them when they landed on the planet. And it's basically an excuse to cut to different types of Halo set pieces. And... Um, it's kind of linked together by this uh, sort of open world at night. This kind of quite with this, you know, sort of smoky jazz soundtrack. The quite the soundtrack is quite famous, and it is very good. Marty O'Donnell soundtrack for this um, for this game. It really is. Um, it lives up to the hype in that respect. Been compared to kind of like a, a, like noir. I think that's a bit of a stretch. It's just a. It's just probably as novel a spin on the Halo concept as you can get, and mm. makes you think about a world where. What if Microsoft just made a, a few more games like this that were a bit more sort of bite-sized instead of like one massive Halo Infinite juggernaut that probably cost a fortune and is um mm. you know is now has immense pressure to please people. This was when you were getting a Halo game every few years. So um yeah, this was two years after Halo Three, and next year there'll be Halo Reach. That's a that's a better world to me than waiting five years for a one big shiny Halo game. But you know, I know that's not how modern game development works. But still, yeah. this was this was a good time for Halo. So, how did you feel about this one, Matthew? Yeah, I I must admit I didn't really like this to begin with. Um, like for me, the the bit of Halo I'm least interested in is just on foot Halo. I love the warthogs. I love all the bombing around in in the in the little banshees and all that jazz. And I know that stuff like does happen in the sort of flashbacks in ODST like you do get some bigger set pieces I never really liked the in-between bits I I found them quite kind of flat Um, I just don't like the core shooting of Halo enough that when that's just front and center I kind of bounce off it a bit more I also found the city just quite confusing to like navigate and get my head around having heard other people like evangelize this game when I replayed it you know a couple of years ago I clicked with it a bit more and I kind of appreciated the sort of storytelling kind of cleverness of it a bit more. I just, 
I don't know if it... I don't want to say it's too experimental for me to get my head around at the time, but there was there was something about it that left left me very cold. Like, I didn't even finish it when I first played it. I just, you know, and it's not a long game. I got, like, two-thirds into it and was just like, nah, enough of this. I, I'm not a natural Halo fan. I, I You know, it's... it's, it's uh, I wish I were. I imagine this is more interesting if you are, like, big into Halo. It's it's such a, a, a weird kind of twist on the formula that it... it it probably feels a bit more exciting, but it's the Sood's choice for the best Halo game. Um, when people say this yeah. is secretly the best Halo game, I'm like, well, it definitely isn't. It's definitely like not as good as Reach Three or Combat Evolved. But um, people like, I think, the stylistic riff on on Halo. You know, this is the one which the first one which had Nathan Fillion in, right? Uh, yes, I believe so. He might be a voice big, in the third big, one. Big like yeah. geeky that kind of culture, yeah. kind of era. You know, it's very like of that. T- there were a lot of games at this period which had, like, people from Battlestar or Firefly in, and, and that got you a lot of cred. It's very of the time. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, yeah, that, Bungie would work with Nathan Fillion for years. He's, like, a big part of um, Destiny for years before they um, stripped him out. But, mm. yeah, like, Trisha Helfer's in this cast as well from Battlestar, so there was a lot of that going around. And um, mm. the other thing I wanted to know about this is that you're not playing as um, a Spartan soldier, so you actually, like, can run out of breath when you're running and stuff, and... Um, you also have like a more fragile health bar, so I think that's quite an interesting power difference. But um... yeah, I think that's maybe what I bounced off about when I was talking about the on foot stuff. Like for me, it took the bit I was least interested in in Halo and made it like a bit fiddlier or a bit more complicated. Yeah, you know, which only added to my woes. That's fair enough. Yeah, the only other thing I'd note about this is the uh, firefight mode, which was um, a really good sort of like spin on Horde, which was becoming a big thing at this time. But um, that's uh, that's me done with uh, my piece on Halo, Matthew. So what's your uh, number six? Number six is uh, Legend of Zelda Spirit Tracks. Didn't make my list, but I'm pleased to hear it's made yours. I, I, I knew it. I knew a, a new Zelda couldn't, game couldn't come out without you um, putting it on <laughs> yeah, your list. So, yeah. I, I feel like I'm probably repeating what I said about Phantom Hourglass uh, when we did the, that the best of 2007 mm. episode. That was that. Maybe yes. six, but it was around that time, yeah. It's that, you know, a Zelda game that really lent into the Nintendo hardware, uh, the DS, you know, controlled on the on the touchscreen um, with um, amazing stylus controls and stylus-based reinventions of, like, the traditional gadgets. I feel like this one's a bit more... I don't... Divisive is maybe the wrong word. It feels... This feels like quite a weird, like, niche Zelda to me. Like, this, this feels more in keeping with... A Majora's Mask or uh, Link's Awakening, in that it's it's got a slightly like weirder kind of comic tone to it, best encapsulated by the bad guy who wears two top hats to cover <laughs> his two devil horns, right. uh, which is just a superb comic touch and really made me bark with laughter when I saw that. He's a weird little man. He's got a demonic train that you're kind of fighting with him. Uh, I think he's called Chancellor Cole, I think is his name. The other thing which I really love about this game is Zelda's quite a key character in it. She's sort of like a companion through the adventure and possesses this giant suit of armour in a bit like a sort of full metal alchemist kind of twist. It's you in this sort of possessed armour doing kind of cooperative kind of puzzling together and you plot her route and send her into areas where it's too dangerous for Link. I really like the Zelda games which do something a bit more interesting with Zelda. You know, one of the reasons I like Skyward Sword is she's a bit more prominent and 
you know that game's a bit more romantic in its kind of depiction of her where this one is quite it's quite goofy it's it's almost like zelda having a wild little adventure and while you do play as link it's sort of as much about what she's up to i like the train stuff i think the the freedom of like plotting the route as the boat in phantom hourglass was a lot more satisfying than just following these quite fixed tracks like i should explain for people who haven't played it your major mode of transport is this train and the original gimmick was going to be that you were going to like lay the tracks across the world for the train then to follow that was deemed too complicated so it's quite a fixed network of tracks there's a lot of toing and froing along the same routes and as you're moving along the track you can control like weapons on the train to kind of fight things that would attack the train and you can control the speed of it and you can pull the whistle and it's quite a childlike fantasy of just like bombing across the countryside pulling the whistle it's got really great music um the the central theme of spirit tracks is it's got this amazing momentum to it you know i think whenever you're on like a train ride afterwards like it it, it'll pop into your head because it feels like the definitive energy of a train kind of captured as a tune Otherwise, it does a lot of the stuff the Phantom Hourglass did, but I, I like the weirdness of the weirdness of the kind of characters, the Zelda twist, um, and it's just a very polished DS game, which should be celebrated. Yeah, so I understand that the, as you mentioned there, the um, lack of like freedom to explore was the contentious element of this for some people. Yeah. They thought it made it too simple. So um, yeah, that's uh, but that's not necessarily something you agree with, even though you agree with the criticism. It is true that you you don't have that control, but like the game is also relatively short by Zelda standards. You know, it bombs along at a good old pace. So I f- I feel like the you know the speed you're going between the dungeons and that you're getting new powers and new abilities and whatnot kind of counters that. It, it, you know, there is a version of this game where it stretches itself out and the limitations of the train become much more apparent but for what it is i think they're they're absolutely fine i think there is enough like twists on on what you're being asked to do that it doesn't really matter for me yeah good stuff i mean i i certainly thought it looked nice i only played it briefly oh, but yeah. tr- trains are actually quite a good fit for the 3d style of the um, yeah the ds so uh, i really like the smash brothers level based on this as well in the 3ds version oh that's wonderful yeah i assume that's in the ultimate one too right Uh, yeah yeah oh great yeah i did yeah that was um that was fantastic worth it just for that but uh yeah yeah interesting pick i look forward to seeing where that turns up in your best zelda games list next week matthew but um Mm. okay or if it does at all we'll see but it's um, tricky oh it's 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 a (laughs) I'll, I'll give you a little teaser. It's quite. It's been quite fraught. <laughs> oh, I can't. I cannot wait to hear your uh, your rundown of those. So, my number six is Grand Theft Auto Episodes from Liberty City. Is this on your list, Matthew? This is not. This is the handheld one, right? No, no. This is the combination of the two DLCs that they released. Oh, in box right. Form. That's right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. I, I thought rather than picking one, I'll just put them both together because they did release as one game, and that's the version I've got now. So. Yeah. Yep, so you've got um, The Ballad of Gay Tony and Lost and Damned. So these are released separately as expansions for GTA 4. They're both set in Liberty City, the same setting. They cross over with the story of GTA 4, each of them. You see the um, the characters. Um, people actually picked up on this before this came out, but people noted that several of the characters uh, looked like they would appear again in some kind of expansion. Everyone knew this DLC was coming because Microsoft made a big deal with Rockstar to kind of like fund the dlc basically and it led to these very elaborate essentially mini gta campaigns where you play as these different characters um johnny Klebitz in lost and damned and uh, Luis, i think it is in um ballad of gay tony but he's a bit of a non-character Luis. it's kind of about tony prince the um the gay tony in the title so 
in the um first one the first dlc you're basically in a biker gang and you're kind of like involved in these sort of like biker wars and then in the second one you're kind of like protecting tony's business he's like a nightclub owner and does lots of illegal stuff and it's that sort of like gta stuff it's sort of like um it's it's notable these dlcs because they uh, are always praised for like framing um liberty city in a slightly different way it takes you more to it it does careful things with picking mission locations that mean it feels like you're seeing parts of the city you didn't really see that much in the original mm. game which is a really good creative choice there's a couple of visual filter things they do as well like there's a noise filter in lost and down to make the city look a bit grittier i guess in um in uh ballad of gay tony they add these michael mann purple sunsets as well to um give the game a different visual style so mm. really successfully does that i think and um the mission design is cut loose a bit more particularly in ballad of gay tony it's like a lot mm. of the criticism for gta 4 was leveled at the fact that they don't do the kind of san andreas style big mission stuff and i think one of the first missions you do in um ballad of gay tony is you're on a moving train shooting down helicopters with an automatic shotgun and it's a lot more like what people yeah. are asking for um so yeah yeah really really top stuff um did you play these matthew uh, i have i've not actually finished either of them though but my my memory was like not being as bothered about the biker one but yes agreeing with the the, the kind of general consensus that they sort of found the fun again a bit in kind of uh, Ballad of Gay Tony. Yeah, so you've obviously got this very overwrought storyline in GTA 4, and uh, and this allows you to cut loose a little bit and just kind mm. of enjoy some sort of japes. And then GTA 5, I think, leans much more into the tone of these DLCs than the main GTA 4 campaign, for better or worse. I, I think it is a real shame that Rockstar's involvement with the games, their newer games, is so focused on like the online component. Yeah, I really miss like their expand. I do miss their expansion work. So, I mean, okay, I know they've finished either of these, but like Red Dead's like Undead Nightmare is absolutely amazing, mm. and I I love the idea that they spent all this money building these huge worlds that then to kind of have a second pop and do something a bit different in that space is just such a smart like cool idea, and they've always done it so well and. You know, I, I wish they'd do that kind of single player adventure expansion again, but I know that their 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 focus is on online and that it does scratch that itch a bit, I guess. Nah, not really. I mean I've played loads of GTA online. It, it, I've never got close to having a high as much as playing these DLC packs. Like yeah. But they do try and sell it as like oh this is almost single player quality stuff. like that when they did that um what was that last one for, for GTA five? The Cayo Perico. I felt like the chat around it, they were trying to sell it as it's it's closer in tone to what you know, what we were doing with those expansions. Like the the, the stuff they're making for GTA online in terms of like toys to play within the city, really, really good. And like the act of putting GTA online like that is really good and I can see that they're motivated by money. You have to be they they're a publicly listed company. They have to make cash, but I completely agree with you. Like the magic of Rockstar games to me was always cinematic single player, and mm. these were like, yeah, you're kind of like in the, you know, in this sort of great golden era of Rockstar games. They still make great campaigns. I don't contest that, but they make them very slowly. But and and they make but online it, content all the time. So yeah, it almost feels like they're they're a little bit above just the pure silliness now of like an undead nightmare. Mm. You get the impression that they almost wouldn't want to do it because it would undermine the kind of sophistication of the main campaign, where it wouldn't at all. Like, if anything, it gives you permission to make these quite po-faced, kind of self-serious, epic cinematic campaigns, and then just just go wild with the kind of daft, daft ideas and mechanics in your expansion. Um, yeah. It's the same people who make them. You know, they've still got that in them to do that. Um, just let them cut loose. 
Yeah, it's weird. Like I, I still think GTA Online is like about half as good as it should be, and that someone could come along and make a better version of that game if they had the resources. Riot, Riot should make that game, I think. But um, mm. yeah, as it stands, yeah, this is like a yeah a vestige of something that Rockstar's not as invested in anymore. They still make good games, of course, and amazing worlds. But yeah, it was. Um, I put this here because yeah, this is just just a great little sort of coda to GTA. Added a bunch of radio stations too with um, cool music and uh, yeah. Good stuff. So what's your number five, Matthew? My five is Batman Arkham Asylum. Perfect. That's my number four. So um Perfect. It is, as far as I'm concerned, the sort of definitive superhero game in terms of its ability at capturing what makes a superhero interesting and letting you live the fantasy of being that superhero. I know there's a lot of debate about which Batman game delivers that best, that you know a lot of people lean towards the Arkham City. Is it a hot take to say that you like Arkham Asylum more? Uh, I think it's just what uh, people go with because there's kind of like open world, a, a bloat I guess in the later ones that people aren't as into. But I think it was last week's episode I was talking about seeing an early version of Arkham Asylum and being a little bit underwhelmed and not really knowing what it was and the kind of pleasure of playing this for the first time and playing this properly for myself was sort of seeing the kind of true structure of the game, that kind of Metroid-y pace and, uh, to it where you you know you kind of go back to previous areas with new abilities the fact that the areas were really dense with secrets i mean all that stuff is just like tick 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 for me you know regardless of batman i like people who do kind of metroid game structures but this particular batman like his gadgets just how satisfying the combat looked how good it made you look with like relative like lack of ability just felt like they really loved the the lore and universe and the way they kind of surfed it surfaced it with like the, the the Riddler challenges and all that kind of stuff was was really well done. Um, just I just found it really exciting to play, like the pace of it, the drip feed of villains, the sort of set pieces, the weird places it kind of took you. You know, they'd made previous games, but seeing them arrive so sort of fully formed of this awesome thing was just you know incredibly exciting to me at the time. Yeah, it was um, just a real sort of a real shock um, that it was as good as it was. I mean, it was emerging mm. over time. Like, um, I think I mentioned in the previous episode, they sent out preview code that had like the Scarecrow stuff in it, and it suggested obviously there was more to this studio storytelling wise than you mm. were maybe expecting. And then I think we talked as well about how the game goes off the rails a little bit when it throws in these Titan enemies, these big yeah. dudes, but. You know, that's only like the final third, really, that it, it really kind of like brings it down a bit. It's, um, there's no denying that this environment they created is incredible. Like the, the sort of detail, the, the depth to it, it felt like a proper sort of like living, breathing place, I guess. It felt like a, something bad had happened to a, you know, a very worn in sort of location. It was perfectly drawn in that respect. Chattering is, is it based well. on a particular like iteration of, of Batman, like art wise, or is it its own thing? It's the same thing. I mean, the the characters are very like Gears of War, sort of like infused, you know, of the mm. time sort of um, designs, like really jacked looking Jim Gordon and stuff. But um, it's um, no, it's kind of an amalgamation of the comics and the animated series, really, into like its own sort of sub universe. But mm. it feels like a world in which basically every Batman story could have happened. That's what's really good about it. I think it's mm. like you know, maybe not like you know, The Dark Knight Rises or whatever, but it, it feels like close enough that basically. He has these pre-existing relationships with all these villains, and that's what makes him really compelling. It's not like uh, you're watching an origin story. You do see his origin in this as a 
Scarecrow flashback. But yeah, I really like that it's like, oh, well, we're deep into Batman's career here. He's known the Joker for years, but this just happens to be like the biggest thing he's tried to pull off, taking yeah. over the asylum. So um, it just yeah. like so many things which became quite hackneyed or even were a bit hackneyed at the time were just so well done. Like I love the audio diaries in this where you get like the the interviews with the different villains and because it's got this iconic cast of characters to kind of play with, it felt like it could just have a lot more fun with that stuff than you know, it's way more interesting hearing a villain you recognise than just hearing like a random NPC we're in on about some backstory. It's um just packed with fan service and I, and I really did love the collectibles in this game. Like I, I, the 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 challenge of getting them, the variety of ways of tackling them. I, I you know, it's a, it's a really gamey game in that way. That in, in a way that I really really admire. Yeah, felt like they took that scene in um, Batman Begins where he like arrives at the docks and beats up all of um, uh, Maroney's men. I think it is. Oh, maybe it's someone else. Whatever Tom mm. Wilkinson's doing in that film where he goes, uh, begged like a dog, that um, his, <laughs> his gangster character. It felt like that was kind of their starting point of like he arrives in this sort of like lands in a circle of dudes and just beats them all up. And this whole um, kind of like 360 degrees melee system is, you know, pioneered by this game and then borrowed, borrowed by so many others. And, um, mm. you know, never really done as well as it is here, I would say. But, no, no. Yeah, it's, um, yeah, great stuff. I think there was like, there's three games I think are like the canonical like masterpieces of this year, and I think this is one of them. Um, yeah, and the other, uh, I think Assassin's Creed Two is another one, and then the other one is, um, well, it will come up later, I'm sure. But yeah, good pick, Matthew. So that's my number. That was my number four, but my number five is Resident Evil Five. So oh, interesting. This is one I've talked about plenty. Obviously, like a very um, hyped game after Resident Evil Four. There's quite a long wait until Capcom figures out what they're doing next. They do this quite bold thing of taking Chris Redfield to Africa and, you know, creates its own like problematic imagery in the marketing, gets a lot of fair criticism, <laughs> even for the time. I think at the time I would have been a lot more defensive about it because I was just like, say, a little gamer boy. But um, I completely think the criticism is fair. There's like optics problems with this game. You'd have been doxing some people. <laughs> It wasn't that bad. I would have just been grumb- I'd have just been grumbling in the office, basically. Um, but uh, just let me play my racist video game, you know. Yeah. <laughs> no, it was. Um, I, I, I agree with all of that stuff. Even at the time, I was a little bit like, "Well, I know this is indefensible, but I'm still going to play it." And um, yeah, it's um, it's it's really interesting because it kind of start. It starts in these like you know sort of villages i guess and then over time it beca- it turns into a wild weird resident evil game like all of the rest of them like um village does where you're mm. suddenly in like you know kind of factories and oil refineries and you know wesker's base and stuff like that i think um what this loses from the sort of like uh darker tone of um resi 4 it does lose that a bit it has a cover system it didn't really need it kind of it becomes actiony in a way that's like uh takes something away from what resident evil 4 does so well it still has a really fucking fun storyline. Chris Redfield is a ludicrous figure in this. Just gigantic arms, like, completely jacked. <laughs> fighting British Albert Wesker, who was American in previous games. They made him British to make him more evil. I respect that. Um, and Wesker's just who's, really who's fun. Who's more jacked? Chris Redfield in this or Jim Gordon in <laughs> Arkham Asylum? I think this version of Chris Redfield is the most jacked character of all time. Um, right. To the point where it is, it is preposterous that the same man is in Resident Evil Village and has now accumulated so many of these bizarre life experiences. <laughs> um, yeah, so, uh, but I'm, I'm very fond of it as a co-op game. I think it works great as a co-op game, like the item trading system and limited inventory. Need and, egg. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, and maybe we'll cut in another one of those at the end of the episode because every character, every character has a line for "I need an egg" and all that stuff. So, um, yeah, I don't feel like I need to go into too much more detail there, Matthew, because I covered it pretty comprehensively on our um, best Resident Evil games episode. Yeah, I've, I've I've always liked your passion for this and its mercenaries mode particularly. Like it, it it comes from a very like g- genuine place. It's it's uh, I like it when these kind of like weird, slightly seven out of ten games get. You know, just becomes something quite important to you in your head. I, I find that quite infectious to listen to. So, yeah, well, apologising for the racism at the same time. Um, that's <laughs> that's my vibe. So, um, we're up to your number four, Matthew, aren't we? Yeah, uh, my number four is maybe a bit of an odd one. It's Mario and Luigi Bowser's Inside Story. Mm, yep, not on my list, but I did wonder if this would come up at some point as one of the big DS oh, games. Oh God, I love this game. This is this is this is so much fun. Uh, this is. Uh, the Mario and Luigi RPG line, which kind of runs alongside Paper Mario, they're the two Mario RPGs. There are sort of similarities in that there's like a sort of timing, quick time element to the kind of turn-based battling in it. But this one is, I'd say, like a you know a lot more kind of obviously daft. It's kind of like a wild cartoon version of the Mario universe where anything can happen. Not saying that Mario is normally like super gritty or anything but this is noticeably sillier than even paper mario i'd say this for me is of all the mario rpgs paper mario and mario and luigi this is my favorite it puts the focus on bowser it's called bowser's inside story because mario and luigi are kind of sort of inhaled into him like the film inner space they're kind of adventuring around inside his body while bowser's kind of stomping around the overworld so you kind of play as you play as sort of both parties. The stuff you do inside the body, like helps Bowser sort of accomplish his goals outside in a very like prescribed way. So like, you know, he needs to be strong. So you'll go to his arms and like mallet his arm muscles so they're tougher so he can lift stuff, th- th- things like that. You know, Bowser's got like a sort of inhale ability where he can sort of suck in enemies and then it switches to Mario and Luigi to like fight them in his stomach inside his body which is really fun like the dual screen element to that i think is sounds gimmicky but it's it's really well executed and i think they find enough of this kind of inside outside playful ideas that the idea really really holds up what i love about the mario and luigi games is they 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 really like escalate throughout in terms of like constant set pieces you're constantly learning new abilities so that they learn kind of like duo moves that they can do in combat as they go around bowser's body bowser is kind of freeing his minions in the overworld which then become um kind of like summons in battle so you can get like an army of goombas every one of them's got a bit of a quick time mini game to them but the concepts of them are just really like funny and frothy it's got these brilliant sort of set piece boss battles where bowser go super size and you turn the ds on its side into the book kind of position and you've got bowser on one screen fighting like a giant castle or another giant enemy on the other screen and it's all kind of controlled with the stylus strokes and like shouting into the megaphone and they're sort of like kaiju battles i guess just a huge bundle of cartoony joy i actually haven't played the 3ds remake which has got like an extra side campaign on it about bowser jr i should probably play that but if you can um, get hold of this still it's highly highly recommended yeah i think the um art style redo they did for that was a little bit contentious um for the the two remakes they did but um you know it, i think it, it's probably the easiest way to play them now 
Mm. Um, is this better than Partners in Time, the other DS one, Matthew? I think so. Uh, I just, I, I, re- I think Bowser just really freshens things up. I, you know, a bit like in the, with Spirit Tracks, how I like the kind of focus on Zelda. I like it when Nintendo kind of like, <laughs> go, not go deep into the lore, but play with some of the other characters and have some sort of fun with their reputations. And the balance of the two worlds, I think, is, is really well done. Really, really inventive. Very sad that Alpha Dream and No More, um, the, the studio that made this, um, they shut down, but um, they yeah. had a great run, and uh, this is their best work. Yeah, it's a real shame that I don't really know why Nintendo let them go out of business. It seemed like um, mm. a game made for the Switch would have done quite well, but sad times. So, Matthew, we're, we've done my number four, um, which was Arkham Asylum, so it's your number three, right? Yeah, my number three is Uncharted 2. Higher on my list. Oh, what's so, your number three? My number three is Assassin's Creed 2. Oh, well, there we go. Yep. So, this was a shock, because original Assassin's Creed uh, has 81% on Metacritic, Matthew, for the Xbox 360 version. Oh, God. This game, that game was bullshit, that first one. It was, like, poor. and So, so boring. Bad. Bad game. So, um, I was, like, quite anti the idea of playing any more of these, and because I felt like it had, it had succeeded in spite of not being very good, and that, mm. really, that really annoyed me at the time, as someone who gave it 58%. But, um... It was. Uh, they always promised that it was going to be more varied, and they made a good pitch with the setting, just changing it to like um, Renaissance Italy. That was um, mm. a good pick. Uh, they came up with this main character Ezio Auditore de Firenze, I think he's called, and um, obviously a much more developed character, a really fun character. Kind of turns it into more of an adventure romp, which it sort of needed. Adds all of these different combat options, like um, little gun you can strap to your wrist, and all of these different melee weapons. Generally speaking, a complete like refresh across the board. One of the best sequels mm. ever made. Just like a, a phenomenal upgrade. Um, still not, you know, all my problems with Assassin's Creed's platforming, which they've never fixed, and its combat is still here. There's like that layer of like we've made this as mainstream and easy as possible. But I can't deny the spectacle of this game was great. It was a really fun story to blast through. Just mm. a, a great upgrade from the first one. Is that how you felt about it, Matthew? It's sort of a tie between this and and Mass Effect Two for like most improved sequel i couldn't believe how, how they'd kind of got their act together uh, it's, it's probably this because mass effect one isn't as bad as, as assassin's creed one mm. yeah great character um i loved all the stuff with the house that you you got the mansion where you you know what you achieved elsewhere in the game was kind of like amassing fortune back at the house i mean that kind of hub world mechanic is now like pretty much a staple of all open world rpgs it's just done really well here this game feels like it kind of creates a template for a lot of like basically what ubisoft will do for the next 10 years Mm. but in a good way like it was all refreshing and and exciting and like you say wrapped up in a really charming lovable character the climbing felt like more of a mechanic in this one in that it had the kind of catacombs, which were like proper platforming challenges, but even like scaling some of the buildings to get to the sink points, they felt a bit more like climbing puzzles, like you to like work your way around and find all the right grips. This is a series which I think got bored of that mechanic quite quickly, and then it just became like hold this trigger and you basically run over any, you know, you can basically run up mountains in Assassin's Creed Valhalla. And it's a shame because it was something that differentiated it from other games. Like if anything, I'd say it's parkour originally was its defining feature and i feel like this was one of the only ones where it actually came into play as like an interesting you know an interesting like bit of mission design and i also liked it when you'd throw down coins 
then everyone would collect them and then you could um, poison a dude with a big hammer and you'd start swinging his big hammer around and he'd basically thwack all the <laughs> peasants collecting the coins and that was endlessly funny to me. Yeah, you spotlighted so many things I like there. So uh, the platforming, this is the one, I think this is the one where they add the handhold mechanic, right? Where you have to like tap B to like, when you leap up to grab to this next level of the... Right. Uh, I think that I think that's in this game and that does add a bit more spice to the platforming, you're right. And... I love the catacombs too, as these kind of like sort of like eerie atmosphere puzzles. They were just a really good um, little aside. The house thing, yeah, a really distinctive environment. That little estate you've got, piecing together the Apple of Eden puzzle, collecting paintings and stuff. It was, mm. yeah, it was like uh, just a really. It really sells you on that open world format. I think that it does get. I think it gets steadily more tired after this. I'm not Brotherhood won't make my top ten. I don't think, but um, mm. this, uh, yeah, this really got me. I really, really love this game. And the flying machine stuff was quite limited and silly, but really fun. It's fun that your pals with Da Vinci. That's just a, a good little um, choice that was. Uh, yeah, great stuff. So, have we reached your number two, Matthew? My number two is Little King's Story. Wow. Yeah, I forgot that that was this year. I thought it was a year earlier, but this was, um, yeah, a, a surprise kind of like, well, not a surprise hit, but just a, a sort of cult Wii game, the likes of which is kind of almost unmatched. Yeah, this is this is a huge end game of heart choice. I also stand by it as a game. Uh, did you ever play this? Do you know that? Do you know much about this one? I know that you're a king and you've got these little kind of minions doing stuff for you. And this was a big like Ashley Day on Games TM loved this game and no right. one else really played yeah, well, it. Uh, so I know because yeah, I know Ash is like super into um, the the work of the game's creator um, Kamira, who now he made things like the Million Onion Hotel and Dandy Dungeon. Really interesting career. Like made the the is it Tulip, which is like the kissing RPG, hmm. a super cult figure. Um, so this is quite weird in that, you know, it got a relatively big push in the West, Little King's Story. It is a, I say, kingdom management game, um, which makes it sound probably a lot drier than it is. You're a little king. You are building your kingdom by pushing into new territory to get resources and things to, to build up your town. In the moment to moment, it probably actually plays closer to Pikmin in that, you kind of collect your townsfolk to take them out into the overworld and then you sort of chuck them at enemies or obstacles and the different townsfolk all have different professions and that changes kind of like what they'll do so you can take soldiers and obviously you throw soldiers at enemies and they'll fight them but then there are like carpenters or you know wood wood um what what, what are people who chop wood called lumber (laughs) jacks is that right? Lumberjacks, yeah. that kind of stuff. So, you know, as you build your town out, you get more professions. You can kind of push further into the map. You can do more interesting things. What really makes this game for me is it's got this um, great sense of humour written in this really kind of casual tone, which will be very familiar if you've re- if you've played Kimura's other games, where, like, all the rival kings sort of send you these kind of uh, insulting notes between missions where they're like... Dear King, you know, you're a stupid jerk and I hate you and all this kind of stuff. He uses the word jerk a lot to great effect, which really made me laugh. Completely surreal touches. The rival kings that you're taking down, each one has got this huge kind of like gimmicky boss fight to it where their sort of strange sort of personality manifests in the boss battle. So there's this giant king who's like basically a giant ball because he's eaten so much and you basically fight him on this sort of pinball table where you're sort of smashing him around into all these like pinball 
sort of bounces and things to hurt him. And there's a there's a king who's basically just sitting on top of a mountain, growing this massive beard, and you have to climb up this sort of obstacle course mountain um, in this kind of time limit to get to him. And there's another one where it's like a a TV game show quiz and you have to answer all these questions to defeat the king and it sets this soundtrack of demented covers of like classical music which I really like it's got this great energy to it it's a distinct sort of unique vision that just sort of runs through every element of the game it really feels like a weirdo has kind of had their say in every part of it I don't really hear much about this game I don't really know what its wider reputation is you know, we definitely probably rated it higher than most. I think we gave it our game of the year at the end of the year, actually. And um, then Kimura wrote us this lovely letter saying uh, how how much he was, how happy he was. He was dancing. He said, "I'm dancing around my flat in happiness because you liked our game," um, which was very sweet. Mm. Um, but I, yeah, I really love this game. Uh, you can play it on PC. There is a version of it on Steam. There was also an absolute dog shit remake on. Was it Vita? Yeah, Vita. Where it basically killed the art style. Uh, it was a different game. It had different element to it, but they just didn't understand what made the game special at all. They completely sanitized it. Do not play that version. It does not represent what Little King's story is about. Um, but if you can track it down, great sense of humor, loads of charm. It's fucking difficult, I will say. The boss fights in particular like, are a little bit trial and error. Like If you bring the wrong combination of professions to the fight, you just won't be able to do them. But once you get your head around some of those quirks, it's like a constantly amusing game. Um, yeah, I, I really love this. Yeah, great pick. I, um, I'll, I'll consider that PC version, but it has mixed reviews on uh, Steam, so it might be a... I haven't played it, so I, I don't know how it holds up, but mm. um, I like probably a... should revisit this at some point because I loved it so much on the Wii. Yeah, there's like a kind of um, sort of... I feel like this fits the same category as Zack and Wiki a little bit. Like, hardcore sort of cult Wii games that kind of got ignored a little bit, you know? Um, Weirdly, I think it sold best in Europe than anywhere because it got, it got really championed by a few a few outlets who really kind of clicked with it. Mm. Um, I, re- I, I think Kimura is this sort of like vital character, really. I'm, I'm, he, he sort of vanishes a little bit after Little King's story, and he, goes, he becomes a producer at uh, Grasshopper. He produces No More Heroes 2, which I wasn't really wild about, and then he sort of comes back later with his strange little um, Onion game studio, and ever since then they've been making these really characterful weird mobile puzzle games which have been kind of mostly brilliant he'll never have a breakout hit he's just too strange and niche but he's so so funny so like weird and committed to his thing i, I really really admire it great pick i'm sure the matthew castle devotees this podcast we um heading to ebay right now to pick this up yeah ash day um, will be happy about that but he will be sad because he likes um excite bots <laughs> which is not featuring this list because I <laughs> thought it was awful. <laughs> oh. <laughs> good, good little coder there, good little dunk there. Yeah, I just want to balance it out. I don't want to get him too excited. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Right, so my number two, Matthew, is Chrono Trigger on the DS. Whoa. I picked this because this is the first time it ever released in Europe, this game. And it is the game I played the most on my DS in 2009. So I really loved it. This um, port is like um, is probably like the best one. It has really nice pixel art. It uh, doesn't have any of those weird Square Enix fonts that are so contentious these days. Right. <laughs> really nice, like, pixely font. And, um, yeah, just a, a great sort of, like, recreation of this um, this SNES classic. And, a re- like, 
of all of the Square Enix 2D RPGs, this is the one now that you can play and and sort of appreciate straight off the bat. It has no real complex behind-the-scenes progression systems. It is a, a an adventure about time traveling, basically. You build a party mm-hmm. member out of like weirdos from across time, like a frog man, and like a, a, a robot, like a, from the future, um, and like a prehistoric sort of like bikini lady, and it just accumulating sort of these oddballs, <laughs> basically. And as a party, um, your characters have these different moves where they can kind of like combine powers. So the robot can use his laser to like, I don't know, power up your sword or whatever. and Or you can like do a kind of cross slash attack with the little frog man who's also got a sword. And the longer you um, have the different party members in your party, the more developed abilities they'll pick up. And um, yeah, you can eventually do these very powerful combos between the d- three different party members. So mm. a really good detailed system that rewards you sort of persisting with different party members. Really love that. The time travel storyline is really, really fun. Uh, has like a kind of big variety of eras. They're far future, kind of like destroyed by this... Um, this kind of like uh, apocalyptic kind of like force that lives in the planet that's um that's really kind of like bleak and interesting when you see it for the first time because you're coming from this like quite green luscious sort of like mm. post medieval setting and um then like you got to flash back to this time where there's like the haves and the have nots of these kind of like wizards who live in a floating continent and then there's all these peasants on the ground and then due to their own like um hubris the floating continent comes crashing down and um, and they basically have to like rebuild society, and it's quite melancholy. Just a, a really like cool, inventive game made by Ooh. Square Enix superstars. So I hope you don't mind, Matthew. That I bodged the list by um, bringing in an old game here. No, not at all. No, uh, a, a, a great, a great pick. Um, I don't have like a huge nostalgic connection to it, but yeah, I, I played it when it when it uh, came back out on DS, and yeah, also really liked it. And it's a like a, a great little standalone thing. I think anyone can enjoy. Yeah, for sure. A Chrono Cross, the sequel, isn't really connected. Um, so, uh, mm. yeah, this is actually quite expensive to get on DS in the UK, but the um, I think you can get some of the US versions a bit cheaper. I bought it on DS a couple of years ago. But, um, mm. yeah, great great game. Really love it. So what's um, your number one, Matthew? My number one, this is bold, it's Might and Magic Clash of Heroes. Wow. I See, I was like thinking, well, surely Matthew will have Uncharted 2 at number one. But no, here we are. Um, so uh, yeah, talk me through it. This is a capybara puzzle game. It is a match three versus strategic battler game. We basically have a grid of units on your screen. The enemy has a grid of units on their screen. You are arranging those units to try and match like colored units. Uh, if you arrange them in a horizontal row, it forms a defensive wall. If you form them in a vertical column, they become an attacking unit and begin to like ready an attack where they're going to charge up the screen. The idea is to combine your defensive walls, the positioning of your attacking units to try and push through all their enemy ranks. That that really is the kind of the basic idea of like a match three puzzle game where the units you make then have this wider strategic importance. This is just like for my money, the best like new puzzle game of the last 20 years to see someone just come up with something that you've genuinely not seen before so fully formed so elegant so beautifully executed and so well explored by the structure of the game you know it has this might and magic rpg wrapping which i must admit i don't really give a shit about i know 
basically fuck all about Might and Magic and have no investment in that universe. But the story is just an excuse to go on quite a large 30-hour journey, which takes you through controlling different factions who all have different kind of unit types, different kind of play styles on the battlefield. It has one of the best learning curves I've ever seen in that the way it gradually introduces the different elements, the different tactics, like the way you're playing by the end of this game is just completely unrecognizable from the the way you start this game it just instantly got its hooks into me i was addicted to this game it came out right it actually came out in the uk in january 2010 but came out in the us in in um, 2009 and that's when i was playing it for review just very rare to see something so fully formed so different really fun mix of missions and like puzzle missions where you're given like fixed boards that you have to kind of come up with the limited moves to win them I, I, this is just uh, that i've put it at my number one shows just i really really rate this game i i think it is is capybara's best games one of the best puzzle games on the ds uh i love it to bits and people if they haven't played it should really go and discover this it is great this uh, yeah, this was. Um, I was quite surprised to learn about this game last night. I was sort of vaguely aware that there was a Might and Magic game on DS that was acclaimed, but I didn't really know what it was. And um, yeah, I found out this has been ported to home consoles as well. But I think the um, mm-hmm. DS version was better reviewed than they were, Matthew. Um, it I just like... like the sprite work. I mean, the HD version, it's just a little a little colder to me. Mm, yeah, that's fair enough. Uh, yeah, yeah, that's a, yeah, an interesting pick. I, I wasn't expecting that, but I do know that you love a good puzzle game. I, I also love what I imagine is your number one. Okay, so Matthew, my very predictable number one, as you preempted, is Uncharted 2 Among Thieves. So, I'm really curious why this very acclaimed but slightly oddball kind of like puzzle RPG game um, beat Uncharted 2 to your number one, because... I feel like this is a signature Matt Castle game. I feel, I feel like I, I link the Uncharted games with the Matt Castle brand. Maybe it's just from those covers where you were trying to compare everything to Uncharted. But um, I'm curious, like, how come this didn't get higher up on your list? Maybe I was just trying to keep the list spicy. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there's an element of that. Yeah. Um, it, it's, it's really close. Like, it's super close. Un- Uncharted 2 was, like, uh, a really um, key game for me this year. Um, I got this is the year i got the my ps3 slim i got it for christmas with uncharted 2 so that was like a real double whammy because i'd obviously sort of seen it at e3 and 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 heard other people talking about it and was really 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 keen to play it so to have you know that was a great christmas holiday just playing out the 2009 with this this amazing game um you know it's spectacular in 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 so many ways and and sort of like creates the the model for i guess what naughty dog will kind of continue to do and what a lot of other people try to do i don't think it is a perfect game this this thing i was sort of weighing it up you know i I do have some problems with not just uncharted 2 like the series like weirdly it's a game that i love while i don't particularly like the combat in it which is probably a factor in 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 its placement the sort of spectacular highs of it are enough and the general level of polish is a, is enough that I do adore it but like when I really sit there and think about it I think well it it, it doesn't entirely convince uh, like when it's just a third person shooter I am as not into it like I'm not in as into the the feel of the game yeah I think uh, that was something I really wanted to ask you actually is like do you think the uncharted games are good shooters because this is the kind of probably the most common criticism leveled in these games other than the fact that 
when they rope in supernatural elements, they tend to go off the rails. In the first three games, um, do this, and it kind of it does it does kind of like throw throw the game off a little bit, sort of regardless. But the shooting generally, yeah, like it's definitely it never quite feels world class. There's something a bit off mm. about it. I think Uncharted Four has better shooting than the um, the PS3 ones do. Uncharted Four. Whether I just kind of clicked with that more, or if there was more subtle stuff going on under the hood, I felt like the fights there were more clearly about like your momentum in that environment. It felt like less of a cover shooter and more of a game where you were meant to be like swinging onto this platform, punching someone out, and the actual areas were quite big, and there was quite a bit of platforming involved like around the action, and you know. It's it's like a game that kind of kills you quite fast if you stay still. So it wants it to look exciting and be constantly kind of moving quite fast. And and but that that also might be true of two. And I just wasn't playing it right. But in in my head, this was a game about where there's something subtly sort of spongy about the shooting. You know, it, it is it isn't like a lethal precision game, and it hasn't necessarily got like the the feedback of like a Gears of War, you know, thinking of other kind of cover shooters. But for the most part, like, shooting is paired with other exciting stuff that you don't really notice it. Like, you know, when you're, you know, going down the train or whatever, you're not like, oh, you know, I wish the shooting was better. You're just like, oh, shit, this is crazy, you know? <laughs> and that's that's kind of the sort of uncharted trick, I think. Yeah, I think... Uh... Uh, the magic of a lot of this era of cinematic action games and i and i count the um call of duty campaigns in this as well is all about how they're paced like how they distribute set pieces versus kind of like slower moments or puzzly bits or whatever and um i think that uncharted 2 fair you know fairly famously its first half does this really well so right up until you get to the village and and slightly after in um in Nepal, the game's pacing is pretty much perfect there's a really kind of good escalation healthy escalation and it's it's really exciting to go through like you know war ravaged streets and then obviously the kind of like um hotel collapsing sequence and then the train is like the you know the the sort of thing to cap it all off really and Mm. i think after that when you get to stuff like the village invasion and there's like a chase after that and obviously your final fight with um lazarevich and the angry bold dude who's not that interesting a character but arguably doesn't need to be um it's sort of like that it it loses that momentum and um i think that's where it dates the most yeah definitely like when i when i got to that stuff when i replayed it when they put out on ps4 again yeah i I sort of felt that a a lot more this time but it's it's kind of a it's kind of a tricky one to go back to now because like so many games have like stolen from it and like i say I, i really do feel like it invents the kind of template maybe like alongside Call of Duty Modern Warfare 1 for kind of how sort of cinematics or storytelling missions can be like it's you know I think these were games which kind of told people it was okay for levels to be more story focused than action focused that like interesting character work could trump like interesting shooting mechanics or stealth mechanics you know sneaking into that museum super early on and just like the banter between you and that um the guy who looks like lee pace what's his name the british dude yeah well you rob them you rob the museum with your pal yeah yeah yeah. sorry yeah that's um uh that was flynn yeah 
Flynn, he really looks like Lee Pace, I think. That that level is just, you know, a really, really, you know, that that's almost like the sort of defini- a definitive Naughty Dog level in terms of it's carried by banter. You know, what you're doing is quite simple. There's an AI companion there, and you're just having lots of really great chat. You know, they've done that level, like, maybe 30 times by this point. And but it all kind of begins here. And again, like that thing we were talking about with Assassin's Creed earlier, it's that step up from one to two is like so vast. I I sort of say that slightly in retrospect because two was the first one I played because that's the one I got with my slim. Then I went and played one, and I was like, crikey, like <laughs> this is just such a such a drop. It's a tough beat for Uncharted One because it was for its time like perfectly good. Like it was a you know game that got 8 out of 10 across the board and um, only compares so unfavorably because Uncharted becomes like a wildly popular I mean you know this is a this is a third play a, a console game on a third place platform you know a PS3 that was the PS3 was which was not really widely loved and it was completely like the dominant event of the end of that year I felt like um, mm. when it came into the office I remember I think it was Games TM playing it and the opening sequence where obviously you kind of wake up in the train car um hanging off the cliff and like everyone every like you know journalist in the building basically going into cramming into this games room and when like a handhold breaks and drake almost falls everyone going oh and just like people being really into (laughs) it and wandering in and out of that room all day because they were so hyped for it like us on an xbox magazine we were just we were all about uncharted 2 still um so yeah, I definitely yeah. yeah felt that in the office. I think the thing with one, it's it's not just to dunk on it too much, but it's it's more of a shooter. Like it, it leans much more on the action. Where I think two knows that its strongest bits isn't just his arena full of men and and waist hide cover. You know that stuff's important. You know it's an ingredient, but in one it feels like that has to do a lot more of the heavy lifting, and because it doesn't quite land as a technical shooter, I think is why the, the the dips felt. But, yeah, I mean, this is just like... You know, there's still stuff in 2 now where I'm, you know, there's set pieces where you think, crikey, like, how do they do this? You know, how you know, it's... I, I, you get the feeling that the kind of rule book they invent for how to actually execute these set pieces on a kind of, like, plotting level and technical level hasn't changed greatly. Like, the tech's a lot more complicated, but I haven't ever felt like that jump again of like oh wow this is this is like next gen it, it still feels I mean, this is like the next step on from what you were previously doing this still feels like super relevant and super impressive like the hotel scene is just like this hugely dynamic space and the way everything's kind of changing is would still dazzle today i think yeah it actually still looks really nice today as well that um yeah. blue point re-release they did was really good i don't know if they reworked any of the textures but i think even just for the time it just looked phenomenal um just yeah yeah, yeah. It looked ahead and it me. has that that slightly because it's going for that slightly sort of indiana jonesy sort of pulpy kind of look it doesn't have to be like the most photo real thing in the world like i kind of like that about uncharted is it, is it has this slightly more broader sort of film set aesthetic and that's a bit more like timeless i think and it's going to hold up for a lot longer than necessarily like the the kind of gritty sort of realism of last of us like last of us 1 remastered feels kind of older in a way than uncharted 2 does like when i went back and replayed that hmm. that's interesting i wonder if that's partly down to color palette as well because it's just such a yeah i mean yeah. 
it's just I don't you know I don't Uncharted Two is just a really fun game to look at. I mean they all are. Um, yeah, there's um another just talking about your influences there. The um sorry the the influence of this game as you mentioned. It does kind of stretch down to like loads of things where you probably don't think it, it is an influence. So obviously the entire foundation of God of War is um you know Kratos' interaction with his son. That is you know that is like the Naughty Dog handbook at work. That's probably like one of the most you know obvious examples of how it filters down. But then mm-hmm. I think if you think about the cadence of third person action sequences and how things like move and are directed, it, like you say, Call of Duty is part of that. But I think really just the scale of how naughty dog does those kind of moments those set pc moments that filters down to everything and also the influence of this game is the fact that it is kind of character driven so when you look at a developer like guerrilla games um swapping the kill zone series for horizon zero dawn there that too feels like an influence of naughty dog to me it's like well instead of making it about shooting in this like you know very grim sci-fi world we're going to make a character the game starts with the character basically like um and then mm. everything everything comes from that storytelling and character that's at the heart of all those playstation exclusives so i think um yeah this game's influence is much wider than may- maybe people think it is mm. yeah, yeah no ab- ab- absolutely absolutely maybe i should have put it at number one maybe oh. i was just trying to shock people with a um a ds puzzle game <laughs> Nah, no, I, I think you're right about the shooting. I think this game definitely trails off after a certain point and then just keeps going. Like, I think if if people are anything like me, when I replayed it, I thought that the lead up to the train sequence and the train sequence in the village, that was about, I thought that was like three quarters of the game, but it's really more like two thirds. And mm. it goes on, the ending, uh, ending act is longer than it should be. And the fight against those like blue dudes in the... Um, uh, village yeah. sequence is just like just kind of like really rough and um, quite annoying. So it's I, not, yeah. I don't think they've ever landed the third act of an Uncharted game properly. Oh, it's a conversation for another day, Matthew. But I do think Uncharted Three is slightly better overall than Two, even though Two's got more memorable moments. It's it's very similar the end to Uncharted Three, but it's just a, a, a lot kind of faster moving and a bit more pleasingly spectacular. Like it doesn't go, oh, this is going to be like the big test of your gunplay might right at the end. It's it's a bit more. Uh, it's easier to kind of coast through it and just enjoy the spectacle of it. I think. Yeah. Well, two is a bit more hard work. Also, that last boss fight in two is profoundly shit. Yeah, that's a, that's where the shortcomings come in. Anytime it is like truly dependent on the quality of its combat system and your ability as a player to uh, sort of navigate that and 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 be and be you know good enough to succeed, just shows the shortcomings of of the system generally. And mm. three, I think, does this really clever thing of like sneaking up on you with its ending. Like it actually really kind of ends quite quickly. Like you say, the. Um, the visit to the, the basically the supernatural bit that weighs down all of these games apart from four mm. it happens like so, it's so brisk like you say you go in and then it's you see some pretty amazing shit and then it's over basically and yeah. that's like kind of perfect and so I, I think three is a little bit unloved actually but um we can talk yeah. about that another time yeah, yeah I'm, I'm looking forward to talking about three in a future episode i have i have lots of thoughts mm. um but yeah two i mean yeah, I'm just a, 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 is a really, really special game, and as an outsider, you know, not really covering st- this stuff and not covering it too closely, it it does feel like the pivot point for PS3. Absolutely, enough said. Okay, Matthew, we did it. We got to the end of the best games of 2009. How are you Whoa. feeling about our two lists? For all the umming and uh, ahhing much earlier in this episode, 
I think there's some there's some pretty amazing games there, and there's quite a lot of amazing stuff that like didn't make the cut at all as well. So it was it was quite a fun year. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, I would say like not quite as good as the two preceding years we covered, but um, the bar was set very mm. very high. And um, like I said, I felt like. Batman and Assassin's Creed 2 and Uncharted 2 felt like they're the games that really were at the core of this year. They were the canon sort of best games, but um, mm. I feel like we had some colourful, interesting stuff around that. But mm. yeah, so let's do some honourable mentions then, Matthew. Let's alternate. Why don't you start with one of yours and then I'll um, fire through one of mine. I hate to repeat myself. Uh, you know, I've talked about this on this podcast before, but I did want to give a little shout out to um, Resident Evil Dark Side Chronicles, which was almost my number 10, but... I like the joyful box whacking of Let's Tap a little bit too much. Um, this is the light gun retelling of Resident Evil 2 and uh, Resident Evil uh, Code Veronica. And for me, the light gun format is just a really great delivery device for those stories. They're very action heavy, telling them very quickly with just this constant sort of assault of zombies fits perfectly. Weirdly, I was going back over some older reviews. It's quite funny seeing people say, like, this is the closest we're ever going to get to, like, a Resident Evil 2 remake. But it does do that, particularly that game, really great service. You know, the fact that you are, like, running around the police station in, like, one long take, as you do in a light gun game, isn't all broken up. It just feels a lot more kind of coherent. You can kind of enjoy it in the way that you enjoyed Resident Evil 2 Remake, I think that's something a lot of people really liked, was that it just becomes a more complete place, and to see it in that light, in the light gun game, it it was really neat, Um, technically very nice for a Wii game, yeah, I'm very fond of that one, so, uh, you know, to the pre-owned section. (laughs) Uh, Talking to you about this has really made me want to play it, actually, but it's um, a tough thing of weighing up, do I try and play it with a PS3 controller, which I don't think is ideal, or... Do I try and find a PlayStation Move controller, which I definitely don't want to do, as we kind of um, alluded to earlier in this episode? (laughs) Or do I just get the Wii versions and have them look at slightly shit output from my um, my Wii U? It's um, it's a toss up, but I I do love your passion for this. Yeah, like um, I've actually really enjoyed this kind of undercurrent of learning about um, Wii light gun games from you, actually, because it really is like. um, one of the better sort of like, well, I don't know if it's an underrated genre, but it's, it was an underrated highlight of the Wii, certainly, that um, yeah, these games I mean, this were right year, this, Like I say, I'm pretty sure this year also gave us House of the Dead Overkill, which was which was sloppy fun. Also, there was a um, there was a version of Call of Duty Modern Warfare, which they kind of light gunned up a bit. What? I'd have to I'd have to check my notes on this, but I'm pretty sure they they like recalibrated it so that you could just play it with a Wii Zapper more as a light gun game. Hmm. Wow, okay, that's cool. Uh, I may be overselling that. It has been a long, long time since I had anything to do with it, but it was called Modern, it was called Modern Warfare Reflex. Great stuff. So, Matthew, vying for number 10, but I ultimately went with Fight Night Round 4 because I think it is a better game, was Bionic Commando from Capcom. So oh, okay. This was a proper... It's definitely a 7 out of 10 at most. Like, it's, um, yeah. it's not a great shooter, but I really, really got into it. I played through it twice, and... I thought that it was just it's a third person game with this like um very built in swinging kind of mechanic you have like a mechanical arm and you can sort of like uh, con- connect to things and swing up onto surfaces swing between locations but <clears throat> it's like you're not really playing as like Spider-Man it's much more limited than that and you're kind of going through these very bleak looking and post-apocalypse environments 
um, fighting things and kind of navigating the world. And I, I must say, I, I thought that the effort they put into making the, the grapple and swinging work was was really strong. It felt really precise and really good to swing on that thing. They didn't mm. get the shooting right in the same way or the combat, but I actually I thought this was a really good uh, one of the few like good results of the um, Japanese publishers freaking out. Uh, and making loads of games with Western Studios. I thought this was one of the better examples. Did you play this one? Oh, I didn't. I, I, I just sort of remember watching people play it in the office and not being as into it. Um, but I appreciate it's probably a game where like the feel of the thing only makes sense when you're playing, that it's maybe not a one to watch, it's one to try. Yeah, I also don't think they quite nailed the character design in the way that, you know, I, I don't want to get too sort of like, I don't know, sort of forensic about this, but... Capcom Japan certainly seems to have a flair with character designs, and this was made by uh, Grin, a Western studio, and I just don't think that um, Nathan Spencer, the main character, was uh, you know had a had anything on Dante or Beautiful Joe or the like. So um, yeah, hmm. but but, uh, but yeah, a favorite nonetheless. What's another one of yours, Matthew? I really liked Shadow Complex at a time where it didn't feel like we were getting many Metroidvanias. Obviously, now there's you know a lot of indie games sort of happening in that space this one i thought was pretty great like i i really liked uh some some of the the weapons and some of the upgrades were just super fun and the way the the, the way they designed the world to exploit them was really nicely done there was that sort of one which kind of shot out it it looked almost like sort of polyfiller it, it sort of like created like platforms you sort of shoot out little blobs of kind of chemicals that would then harden up so you could kind of build platforms which is like a hugely empowering you know super ability to have in in any kind of metroidvania game i really really love the fast speed in this as well where if you've got like a long enough run up you'd go into like super running and it there were all these kind of crazy racing lines sort of hidden throughout this facility where they were just long enough to get you super fast and then you could sort of run up walls and tear tear across lakes and things, a bit like the uh, kid in The Incredibles. Yeah, I, I almost had it on my list as well. I didn't I didn't finish it, though, so I felt like it wasn't quite in contention in the same way. I actually um, I, I understand as well. Like I've grabbed this uh, Epic Game Store version that you can play on pc now and um they've mm. kind of spruced it up and stuff it's it's pretty cool that you can play that on modern formats and i think it's um, backwards compatible on xbox one series x as well so easy one to pick up i feel like was this like the first of the revival of metroidvanias i feel like at the time everyone was comparing this to super metroid and there wasn't another kind of like there wasn't another comparison point around at that point no there wasn't a lot happening in 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 that space i guess there was sort of like like cave story on the kind of indie scene was was quite big at around a similar time but mm. um yeah this this was definitely like a big comeback and yeah i liked it I remember, whatever happened to the developers it was chair wasn't it yeah chair they made this and then they made infinity blade which is one of the first kind of like ipad hit games um mm. so yeah interesting history for them but uh mm. yeah good good pick good pick so i've got another one here matthew which is um uh, flower the PSN uh, game where you control the wind to gusts and petals around. I don't have loads to say about it. One of those very indie game indie games in terms of like the <laughs> aesthetic, but weren't many of them around at this point. Quite a nice sort of break from um, the sort of you know louder sort of games around at that time, and just yeah, just generally quite pleasant. And actually, like one of the only games that ever used the six-axis motion control in the PS3 controller well. So, yeah, you just sort of bring life back to the environment. It's kind of a little bit like a Kami, I suppose. And then, um, yeah, and then it's over in about two or three hours. But 
yeah, a, a mm. sort of um, good example of when Sony was interested in having kind of exclusive, cool digital games on their service. But mm. yeah. Any others from you, Matthew? Well, you say Flower. I was quite big into a uh, weird Suda51 game, Flower, Sun and Rain, which couldn't make my list because it's just, it's sort of fundamentally too shit. You know, it's like willfully bad in places in that kind of slightly irritating sort of early Suda way before I think he kind of um, gets a bit more normal with like No More Heroes. This is one of his earlier weirder things about a sort of a, a, a sort of a man visiting hotel and you can hack into people with a briefcase. It's all very odd. It's a game that is very, very slow, very cumbersome and constantly makes jokes about how slow and cumbersome it is. It makes you walk down a really long road while a nice bit of music plays. It's basically the ladder from Metal Gear Solid 3, the game. (laughs) Um, What a pitch. And... While it's sort of hard to recommend for for those reasons, and it will annoy a lot of people, there are probably a couple of people who will play this and think it's just so sort of like weird and rad um, that they'll really get into it. And, you know, I kind of, I appreciated it a lot. I remember, I think like Edge gave this a four. I think I gave this like somewhere in the 70s. In my review, I, I, I did the score as a riddle, which you could only answer if you were like into other Suda 51 games so it would only be a recommendation if you were an existing <laughs> fan a total gimmick which I think was lost on a lot of people <laughs> I, I really want to see these pages now like that's uh yeah maybe we can um maybe you can read it out on uh, an anniversary episode or yeah something I, like I say I say a riddle it was basically just like a load of numbers which you extracted from his other games to add up to make to the score it wasn't like anything too sophisticated oh still still sounds pretty I was uh... on a deadline Sam <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's that's the kind of only, the mad idea that can only happen when a, a man's on deadline um <laughs> yeah I, I understand as well this is a big influence on Paradise Killer which we talked about in best detective games it's um yeah 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 stylistically for sure i mean their game's better than, than this it's much more fun to play <laughs> it's also kind of a bummer that um this ended up getting ported from ps2 to ds because the ds doesn't the ps2 original looks really good like um and then the ds one looks okay for what it is but quite you know it's definitely a 3d game that's been like chopped down to make it work on a handheld so um mm. yeah it would have been it would have been cool if you do some kind of hd remaster but then if you did we'd probably just all complain about how cumbersome it is so um yeah, yeah. it's uh, like uh, yeah an interesting curio for sure yeah who knows maybe it'll come up in a future episode of game court who can really say so <laughs> i'm gonna put two games together here which is uh warhammer 40,000, dawn of war 2 and halo wars so Halo Wars was a um, uh, first effort to make Halo into an RTS on Xbox. They built this quite quite good kind of um, painting sort of system for selecting units, and it actually felt very pared down as an RTS compared to you know what you could play on PC. But it was still pretty good for what it was. Eventually, gets a sequel from Creative Assembly, and yeah, I thought it was. I, I gave it a seven out of ten for Games TM. I thought it was perfectly fine, and. Um, yeah, it was kind of a bummer that this is the last game that Ensemble Studios made because I was a big fan of the Age of Empires series. And Dawn of War 2 I picked here is um, a really interesting sort of sequel to Dawn of War, which was kind of a more conventional RTS. This is more of a kind of like tactics game where you control like a small amount of um, units. It is a real-time game, but you're, yeah, it's, the scale of it is much smaller and it, it, looks, it looks really nice and um, had kind of acclaimed multiplayer. But I, I really dug this as quite an innovative um, sort of sequel to... Um, 
to a more conventional type of game. So, uh, yeah, it's good. You can get that mega cheap on Steam, and it has some good expansions. So those two, Matthew, I just wanted to bundle together. Any more from you? Uh, I should probably put a little shout-out for Mad World. Did you play this? Uh, I've, um, I I think I bought it in Games Court. Um, that was, like, one of the first games that came up. But, um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I mean, again incredible effort and shown love to to a Wii exclusive um looked absolutely mad I think it's really good for one playthrough um but it just doesn't have the depth to sort of sustain it it's total style over substance sort of super violent but in a way that it sort of dazzles you as long as it's doing new things once you've seen everything once it it kind of runs out of steam quite fast it was no Bayonetta which I thought it was 2009, but turns out it wasn't. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Oh, we had that confusion, didn't we? Where it's uh, yeah, it was actually several days into 2010. So um, I'm sorry to have taken that from you. Yeah, I mean, um, this uh, this era of um, sort of platinum games, it was cool that they came out of the gate with this sort of deal and made all this cool stuff. But then it and then it seems like they've kind of had like you know just been jumping from job to job in the time since then. Although I suppose they work with Nintendo a bunch these days, but. Um, yeah, sort of. Uh, it was it was just a really exciting bunch of games to see them all, like um, Va- uh, Vanquish, yeah. Bayonetta, uh, Mad World, and Infinite oh, Space. Man, they, what? Yeah, it was such an event. Like just them sort of arriving with with all these huge promises, and they kind of delivered on their first wave. I you know I I like all of the the first four things because in Infinite Space as well. Mm. Um, so yeah i i hope they find their groove again i think they still make amazing i think the games they make with nintendo are are properly properly great astral chain was a a real banger um but i do feel like they're a little bit kind of uh, in slight limbo land yeah i agree what they need to do is get bought by someone but not microsoft you cancel scalebound has to be someone else and just Um, let cameo make something fucking amazing because it's just it's sort of obscene that we haven't had a you know a new cameo game since wonderful 101 Mm. Well, this does mean as well that we're going to have um, three platinum games vying for um, your top ten in the next ep- the twenty ten episode, Matthew. So um, mm. people have that to look forward to. It's so it's exciting. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, yeah, a few more here. I'll bundle two more together here. So I've um, got two seven out of ten uh, open world games, which I kind of enjoyed this year, mostly because I had nothing but time on my hands as a single man to throw at computer games. But um, yeah. Infamous, which I reviewed, that was um, one of the best PS3 exclusives of this year. It was kind of like a superhero game with really kind of um, poor, poorly implemented moral choices, but had a really fun rail grinding mechanic to get around the city. Um, looks quite uh, grim to look at the screenshots these days. That the color palette hasn't aged very well. You play a very boring looking <laughs> bold dude as the main character. Um, con- by contrast, though, the saboteur actually has quite a quite a sort of outstanding art direction because it's this World War Two set game where. Um, uh, it's, uh, Paris is occupied by Nazis and in the um, occupied areas of the city it's black, white and red so it's quite um, a striking aesthetic and then when you clear it out in terms of this beautiful like um, golden sunshine sort of world it was basically like an Assassin's Creed rip-off that had guns attached to it but had some quite cool set pieces where you blew up like um, uh, zeppelins and shit so uh, I kind of enjoyed mm. both of these games but neither does it, neither really needed a place in the top 10 so um, that's, that's fair I would have been disappointed if you put Infamous in your top 10 <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like yeah, you would have made a value judgment on me from that. It, it, it's it's that is such a PS2 game with flashy graphics. It's such a PS2 open world. I think. Yeah, I think that's probably fair. The second one is a lot better, I think, in the um, New Orleans set sort of location. But um, yeah, and uh, I couldn't, I couldn't 
in all good conscience put um, uh, Saboteur in there because it had a DLC that you paid for to uh, see some boobies in the game. So um, I can't endorse. <laughs> I can't endorse that. But uh, yeah, I only play games that have that. <laughs> that's, that's, well, that's one of my rules. You got I'm any Nintendo's more? Nintendo's notorious for that. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, have you got any? <laughs> Sorry, not sure where to go from there, really. But um, you got any more from uh, from? honorable mentions Matthew a final little shout out for Crystal Chronicles Crystal Bearers um, which we've covered in the past you didn't like I did like uh, I, th- I thought it had a kind of a, a, z- a sort of zany anything goes approach to the sort of Final Fantasy in that it's just about chucking telekinetic powers and like messing around more of a toy box than a satisfying combat system uh, very like mini gamey but quite good production values great soundtrack I thought um, for for a Wii game, I, I was I was super into it. Again, like people probably have this read on us already. It's 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 quite sort of uh, oddball and underdog, which I kind of gravitate towards to a bit more. I think um, it's like I like it when weirdos get a bit of space to make just a weird game, regardless of whether or not it's very good. <laughs> I think every time you go to bat for a sort of like a 6 or 7 out of 10 Wii game that a publisher put a lot of effort into, I feel like I understand you a little bit more as a person, Matthew. Um, <laughs> right. Yeah. So, I mean, uh, that, yeah, that is that is the story of my career. <laughs> a, no. lot, a lot of love amounting to not a lot. <laughs> Uh, so yeah, I, I only have one final um, honourable mention here, which is the Beatles Rock Band, which came out and I played it through once and then um, bought a load of the DLC and then never played it again. And now I no longer own one of those plastic guitars. So um, and they've seen, and it seems like you can't download the DLC anymore. So I don't even know if you can play this now. Which you know how how shit are these licensing agreements that a game can just vanish yeah. off the face of the it's earth? Like, it's, it's like they no longer have the rights to Ringo, so he's replaced <laughs> with just a blue cuboid. <laughs> yeah so um that's kind of a bummer i think i think a game like that because it wasn't beautifully made like um you know they put loads of effort into the animations and stuff and bringing the music into that that well but they were right at the tail end of people's in declining interest in these these types of games so i think it was a bit didn't sell that well and yeah like i say well i mean it's so it's just really rubbish they made something this good that you can't actually buy or play um now we well, can play it on um you know, like a Wii or the Wii version or PS3 version or whatever. But I don't know. This feels like this should you should just be able to play this um, at any time. But I like that game. Mm. It was nice. Did you play this, Matthew? Were you much of a Beatles guy? Um, no, I, 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 I've, I've quite liked the Beatles, but I, I came to them super late. Like, even when this came out, I wasn't particularly into the Beatles. Because I remember Rich Stanton, a friend of the show who I was living with, was super into this because he was more into the music. But, you know, I was just sort of... Give me, give me the rock, but rock band Divine Comedy or rock band Randy Newman or Give Me Death. <laughs> oh, amazing! I knew that you were going to say Randy Newman. Then I was just waiting for it. Oh my it. god, oh. I would love that. That'd be so good. Only hard because it's, it's so piano based. Uh, <laughs> well, the only um, other thing that I, I don't quite have an dishonorable mention, but I thought about putting in the top ten was Call of Duty Modern Warfare Two, which didn't make either of our lists, Matthew. So um, yeah. I, d- I didn't play the multiplayer of this one really, and um, I enjoyed the campaign, oh. but it wasn't as good as the first one. So. I played. I did like the campaign. I, pl- I actually played the multiplayer on this loads. Um, I became obsessed with my accuracy because I was so shit at playing the game. I became obsessed with my 
accuracy rating as that was the only thing I felt like I had any kind of control over being good at you know like my kill death was terrible so I, I started playing like exclusively exclusively as a sniper and I'd rather die than miss a shot just to keep my accuracy rating high because in my head I had this sort of like fantasy of someone looking at my accuracy rating and being like oh shit like there's this sort of like dead-eyed killer in in the lobby with us like if he pulls the trigger someone is definitely getting hit and i had so i was sort of building up this little kind of myth about myself uh and then my shitty flatmate played my file and absolutely destroyed it <laughs> oh god it all kind of ties back together curvy enthusiasm it all comes style. back round to that scratchy petty fellow gobbling motherfucker yeah Oh god! I just—I was actually, um, yeah, I was, I, was, I was telling my partner about that, and she was um, appalled on your behalf. It was just, uh, yeah, it's rough times. Do you think that Clint I mean, Eastwood will make a film about you as a sniper, Matthew, in Call of Duty? <laughs> Bath <Bar> sniper? <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, pro- probably not. I mean, it's sort of a—it just, I. That's my romantic telling of it. I mean, the reality is I was just a really cheesy camper in every single game of Modern Warfare Two I ever played. Oh, um, I Amazing. Well, I, I really, I really so enjoyed goes. the, I really enjoyed the roller coaster ride of this um, campaign. It, it's like it's much closer to being sort of sci-fi or alternate history kind of weirdness than um, the modern warfare was. But I thought it was, um, it was short but really intense. I, um, I briefly considered reopening the uh, discourse around that opening, which was very tasteless and um, where you shoot, mm. you shoot a load of people in an airport, and I think has different connotations these days with. Um, you know, mm. gun violence in America and stuff like that. But, you know, it's um, otherwise from there, it just becomes sillier and sillier. And it's quite a, yeah, it's quite a tough game to sort of gauge. I, I'd have to, I think I'd have to replay it before I could like say whether it would, it would take a place in my top 10. Cause I, I do remember this as being exciting, but kind of a mixed affair compared to the first one. But yeah. Yeah. I, I know I'm, I'm completely with you. Yeah. Okay, cool. Well, Matthew, we've done it. We did the best games of 2009. It was really oh. long. Um, and uh, but I nonetheless enjoyed it, and I hope you did too. Yeah, absolutely. Great, great, uh, great to go back to some some fun gaming moments in an otherwise quite grueling year. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Okay, so thank you very much for listening. If you enjoyed this podcast, please consider giving us a nice review on uh, Apple Podcasts. Well, it doesn't have to be nice, I suppose. That's up to you. But if you enjoyed it, then go for it. That helps us find new uh, new listeners. So. Um, any sort of support is appreciated if you want to follow the podcast on twitter it's backpagepod on twitter you can also email us your questions at backpagegames at gmail.com when we're out of these um listy episodes we'll um, read out a few listener questions so by all means drop us a line and uh, matthew where can people find you on twitter i am at mr basil underscore pesto i'm samuel w roberts on twitter our next episode is the best zelda games as recounted by matthew castle and in the episode Ooh. after that, probably something lighter because them um, two big list features in a row is going to make us quite tired. I think. Also, so, you, you, everyone's going to be really cross after the Zelda episode, I imagine. So good stuff. <laughs> so whichever subscribers are left can enjoy what comes after that. But um, yeah, <laughs> thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next week. Bye for now. Bye.